I'm going to leave you voicemails that say, Hello, Sydney. <laughs> you think you're on whatever land you land on. <laughs> That's my favorite Hello, scary movie. John Smith. Pocahontas is my favorite scary movie. <laughs> What's your favorite scary movie? Cockney in your version of Scream, apparently. What's your favorite scary movie? <laughs> Is that you, Randy? Cute. And what movie is this from? I spit on your garage. Lose the outfit. If Sydney sees it, she'll flip. Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Cut, Casper. That's a wrap. Hello, Sydney, and welcome to When We Were Young, a podcast devoted to our favorite pop culture from our formative years, roughly 1980 to 2000. In every episode, we take a look at a piece of pop culture from the past, discussing what it meant to us then and debating whether or not it still holds up now that we are old. (laughs) I am Chris, your podcast host most likely to run up the stairs when he should be running out the front door. I'm most likely to play a version of a version of a version of Becky in a big Hollywood horror movie franchise. And I'm Seth, the host most likely to rip your insides out and hang you from a tree so we can expose you for the heartless, desensitized little shits that you are. That is actually exactly who you are. Yeah, that was right on the money. So before we jump in, I just have a couple quick questions for you guys. Give me a quick answer. Do you like scary movies? I do like scary movies, Chris. And Seth? Yes. Okay. That was a quick answer, unlike Becky's. Second question. Becky's was very involved. What's your favorite scary movie? It's not Scream. (laughs) Uh, My favorite scary movie is probably, uh, in the last few years, The Babadook. Excellent. Seth? I would say my favorite scary movie is either The Shining or Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Good choices. Well... My favorite scary movie is something that we are discussing in this episode. It's everyone's favorite slasher franchise, the Stab movies, right, guys? <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm a real stabist myself. <laughs> no, we are talking about Scream, which basically single-handedly revived the horror genre in the late 90s, as well as its sequels. And yes, it is my favorite scary movie. So if uh, Ghostface were to ask me that on the phone, it would be very, very, very meta. That would be appropriate. It would indeed. And since it's the holidays, we would like to just bring up a bit of new business. Um, For all you Christians and Jews and Kwanzaa celebrators out there, um, we would like reviews for our podcast on iTunes. So if you could take a minute out of your busy holiday days and review us, uh, preferably with five stars, that would be very appreciated. Um, And we will read your review on the podcast in a future episode. And we promise we won't do it using a voice-changing machine. It'll be these actual, beautiful, sumptuous voices. All right, I was actually planning on using a voice-changing machine, so we're going to have to discuss this uh, when the episode ends, I guess. Well, fair enough. Well, I would like to say that I'm Jewish, so I want a review for every night of Hanukkah. Well, I want one just for every day in December, so. Chris wants an advent calendar of reviews. I, I would be down for that, too. 
And chocolate. I want the chocolate, too. Please send your reviews and your chocolate. Chocolate to us, reviews to iTunes. Since we're a podcast about looking back to our younger days, uh, we like to open with a topic related to what we're discussing in every episode. So I would like to hear about your guys' first experience being scared by pop culture, either a movie or whatever. Mine, personally, was not a movie. But um, do you remember, like, your first scary experience? Well... I honestly don't remember being scared. I, I grew up watching horror movies, and my mom was a huge horror movie fan. Um, we would watch them together, and I don't remember being scared. I think I started getting scared at horror movies when I was an adult, and I knew what was actually happening in them <laughs> uh, when things weren't going over my head. But my mom and I would watch Poltergeist. We'd watch The Exorcist together, um, The Shining, uh, she once took me out of school early when I was in fourth grade because Child's Play 2 had come out and we were going to go see a matinee together. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she wrote a note to the school saying, I'm taking my daughter out early so we can go see a matinee of Child's Play 2. That's incredible. And CPS did not come pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> so basically more like your life was a horror movie with yeah. your mom constantly frightening yeah, you. Yeah, I just didn't realize how scary it was till later when I was an adult. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, the fact that I've been watching horror movies my entire life, but it's not because they were scary to me. I don't know. I have been scared by horror movies, but that's not why I like them. And what about you, Seth? Um, so it, it's funny because you didn't give us this question beforehand, but the moment you asked it, I knew exactly what my answer was. I wanted to catch you off guard, so, just like Ghostface would. N- no, and it's perfect. It worked. Um, I had cable basically my entire childhood growing up. And not just my first, like, scary memory of a thing in TV or movies, but, like, one of my earliest memories is that there was a an interstitial commercial for HBO where, um, where a hand would come out of the ground. And it, I remember, I don't know what it actually looked like, but it was, like, a gnarled, like, scary Frankenstein or zombie-esque hand. Um, And it would come out of the dirt and, like, grip an HBO logo. And so that image was just so powerful and stuck in my mind that I had, like, serial nightmares as a child of that hand coming out of the soil to, like, grab me. And that was just a promo for HBO? It was literally, so it was, HBO used to have, you know, they have, like, the interstitial things now where it's like, and next on HBO, real time with Bill Maher. Was that scene from a movie, or was it? No, it it wasn't from a movie at all, but it was on HBO, the movie channel. (laughs) Right. And so, like, my mom and dad would have it on all the time, like, to watch movies on HBO. And just for whatever reason, I know that I watched lots of horror movies growing up and even around that age, but I'm talking, like, one and a half two, two and a half years old. Like, this is literally one of my earliest memories, and it's this, like, of a, of a movie channel and obviously advertising that they had, like, scary movies and that type of thing. Um, so it probably aired, like, around Halloween, maybe. Um, but, yeah, that was my, my earliest... was a commercial. Uh, yeah, like, one of my <laughs> earliest scares. All right, mine isn't much better than that, because mine was uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller video, which Ooh. scared the hell out of me. It wasn't when the video first came out, because I wasn't born yet, but I must have seen it at some point, and I don't, I don't think I watched the whole thing, but just some image from it, like, freaked me out, and I was up for weeks. Like, couldn't sleep, had to have my parents, like, sit there, like, while I slept. They had to buy me toys and, like, put them, like, you know under my pillow so that bedtime would be like a happy time again. 
Um, it uh, it freaking terrified me. And uh, I have unsolved mystery stories that I can spool out, but we can do that later. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like interesting because while you guys are talking, I'm actually trying to think of a horror movie that scared me when I was little, but it wasn't that. Like I was scared of E.T. <laughs> I was no. That was actually that out. was the second thing I was going to mention is that I was terrified to eat Reese's pieces. I thought he was ugly. Like I, I love the movie now, but like I thought he was ugly and scary, and I like didn't want to watch that movie when I was younger because I thought, I thought that, he was scary. I thought that candy summoned aliens. He was scary. My parents literally like held me down, and in my mind, I don't know if this is true, but they like pried my eyes open. <laughs> Because I was screaming, bloody murder, not wanting to watch E.T. Because it was so scary. Like, the opening was so scary. And they were like, you're going to like this movie. I'm like, no. Give him the water treatment. This is our child. I think once there were Reese's Pieces, I was fine. But before the Reese's Pieces, I was pretty terrified. We had an E.T. doll at home, like a plastic E.T. doll. And I would, like, throw it across the room and hide it. Like, I didn't want to see it. All right, so before we talk about our own experiences with Scream, um, I'm going to give a little background on the slasher genre in general because Scream really, like, piggybacks off of every single slasher movie that came before it. So Psycho is often considered the granddaddy of slasher movies uh, released in 1960. You guys have seen Psycho, I assume. Most definitely. Yeah, um, there were definitely movies about serial killers before that. You know, there's M and other movies, but... The effect that that movie had on the audience, really terrifying them and really, you know, created a lot. My grandma still to this day, I believe, has not taken a shower since she saw Psycho. She's not a very dirty person. She does take baths every day, but she will not take a shower because of Psycho. Still. I believe so. That was true at least when I was a kid. I haven't, like, checked in with her every day to be like, Um, any showers today, grandma? I've heard your grandma stank. (laughs) My grandma's a very clean woman. Sorry if you're listening, grandma. I'm not sorry if your grandma's listening. I hope she is. Grandmas are awesome. (laughs) But it was the 70s and 80s when true slasher movies really became a thing. The real birth of them was 1978 with Halloween. You guys have seen Halloween? Yes. And you've celebrated Halloween, I assume? (laughs) Yes. I'm not familiar. (laughs) (laughs) And what's interesting about that is that there was already sort of a meta element built into that because Halloween star Jamie Lee Curtis, who was the daughter of Janet Leigh, who is the one who died so famously in Psycho. So... Even in one of the very first, like, real slasher movies, there was already, like, a sort of a meta casting element. So that's kind of baked into slasher movies in general. Friday the 13th, also named after a spooky holiday, was the next big slasher blockbuster. And then there was A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, directed by some guy named Wes Craven. Not sure whatever became of him. He may have worked again. Chris, he made a lot of horror movies. Did he? Yeah, a lot. Who? Were any of them self-referential? Oh, all, all of them. And then came all the copycats that started giving slasher movies a bad name. We got Black Christmas, Prom Night, My Bloody Valentine. Lots of holidays in there. Lots of special events. And they became more about the gore and the body count than the story. A lot of tropes that were easy to make fun of. Um, a lot of sequels to the other previous successful ones, A too. lot of sequels. Like nine, ten movies. And they became known more for their killers than their stars. So Jason, Freddy, Leatherface, Michael Myers, Chucky. Like, I knew who all of those guys were before I'd seen any of those movies. They were just 
kind of these legendary figures that... Oh, I definitely did, too. Yeah. I even saw, like, action figures of them before I ever heard of the movie. That's true. They did have action figures, which is kind of disturbing, because you shouldn't oh, yeah. necessarily have Especially a, like... like, Freddy Krueger. Like, a kid, I went to summer camp, like, all through kindergarten through eighth grade, and people would have, like, Freddy Krueger dolls, and I'd be like, what the heck is that gross thing? And I think the fact that you know them is indicative of the quality of at least the first movie of those franchises, mm-hmm. because they made a villain that is memorable, which I think is really hard to do, and it shows whether your uh, movie will stand the test of time and whether people like it enough that you've made a really interesting villain. Yeah, I think the films out of that whole canon that are considered like really pretty great films are Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street for the most part. And those are two that focus like really closely on a final girl who comes back in multiple sequels. A lot of them had very disposable casts who were just, you know, in one movie and then you didn't really care if those characters came back or really survived. But Halloween like really hinged on Jamie Lee Curtis for the first two movies and then she came comes back for some of the later sequels. And then in Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Nancy Thompson, uh, played by Heather Langenkamp, is also in several of those movies. Um, and it's because they're they're actually like really solid characters. Like you actually care about these girls making it, which I think is not true in, you know, a lot of these schlocky movies. And when we see Cal- uh when we see Kevin Williamson's approach to the Scream movies, I think that's very influenced is that obviously Sydney is pretty much the core of the Scream movies. Like maybe could make a Scream movie without her, but obviously they, they didn't do that. She was always very important to the franchise and her survival is the thing of the movie. So with all that in mind, I would like to tell you a little story about a man who was home alone house sitting one night in Westwood, Los Angeles watching a Barbara Walters special on the Gainesville murders about a creepy figure who stalked and killed a bunch of teenagers. Then, the man heard a noise. He went to investigate and found a window and the home was open. The man had been staying in the house for two days and hadn't noticed the window was open before. So the man grabbed two weapons, a butcher knife in one hand and a cordless phone in the other. And he called his friend David, telling David to stay on the phone while he checked the closets, under the bed, the shower, the garage, And as the man did these things, David was teasing him on the phone, saying, Watch out, Michael's right behind you, and one, two, Freddy's coming for you. And then they began arguing about which killer was scarier and quizzing each other to see if they knew the most about slasher movies. The next day, the man wrote a screenplay based on the experience. That man was Lee Daniels. Like the butler? (laughs) (laughs) The stabby butler. (laughs) It was Kevin Williamson. Wait, are you saying that that was a real experience he had? Yes, yes, that's a true story. That was his inspiration for Scream. Well, now they have to do a movie about him and that scene, and then it's all meta. Well, that would also, yes, that would also be very meta. Yeah, it would be like uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare where everyone plays themselves. Wes, Wes Craven, I'm, I'm, <laughs> exactly. you're bringing up this unfamiliar <laughs> filmmaker to me again. He made a lot of horror movies, Chris, like this one. So Kevin Williamson went away to Palm Springs and wrote the first draft of Scream in three days after that experience. There was a bidding war and he decided to sell it to Bob Weinstein, who was the most passionate about getting the movie made and was also responsible for attaching uh, Wes Craven. Uh, At that time, the script was called Scary Movie, but people were kind of confused about whether the movie was a comedy or a straight horror movie, and Scary Movie kind of made them lean toward comedy. So they, it was Bob Weinstein, actually, who decided to change the title to Scream, inspired by the Michael Jackson song. For the record, I think it should have been called Scary Movie. I think it fits the movie more. 
really feel like it fits the movie like yeah, I mean, we'll get into the reasons why, but I really totally agree with you. Yeah, it totally I, fits I, the I've more. never heard that before, actually. That's totally new to me. Did you not know it was ever called Scary Movie? No, I had no idea. Well, that's why it's so ironic that yeah. like the parody, the parody of the movie franchise. is called Scary Movie. I love the title Scream. I think that it I think that they're kind of right because like that's kind of what happened to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie is that like it kind of has a campy title and when the movie was made, it was made as kind of almost a spoof of horror movies but when Joss Whedon is actually able to make it according to his vision it's a lot more grounded I mean it's still very funny and that the script reads very funny it's the same with Scream the script reads very funny and you can honestly make the exact same script in a ridiculous way but I think the movie's so much more effective because it's really grounded in reality and it's really treated mostly as a straight drama and horror movie with funny elements versus the other way around. The first Scream came out in 1996. Uh, we were all pretty young in 1996. Becky? I was a zygote. Becky. No, I was 13. Yeah, I'm, I'm still young now. <laughs> a 13-year-old so zygote. What people are talking about. So what was your experience with the first Scream movie? I have a funny story. Okay, so I was 13, um, and that's an R-rated movie, so I wasn't able to see it in movie theaters legally. Um, Legally. We didn't have any fake ID or anything, but I had a friend who, you know, popular girl, cool friend, and she wanted to see this cool movie. And that's what everyone kind of thought of that movie. It was like a cool thing that was for like young adults and like hip adults. And of course, when you're and 13, young adults. yeah, <laughs> when you're 13, you want, you want that. That's what you're aspiring for. You want to see the thing that the cool people are going to. Yeah. So I remember we went to a movie theater and what you would do if you, at that time, if you wanted to see an R-rated movie, you just bought a ticket to something else that was, you know, G or PG. 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> um, and then you go into the R-rated movie. So we bought a ticket. Wait, what? I've never heard this, <laughs> this horrific so, deceitful ploy before. It was invented in Long Island in 1996 by a woman named Becky Bain. Yes. Um, so me and my friend went and bought tickets to Shine, the movie with <laughs> Jeffrey Rush. It was the only other movie playing at that particular theater at that around that time that we could sneak in that wasn't R. So wow. we got a ticket to Shine, and then we went to go to the theater to go to Scream, but there was a, a security guy there checking t- checking IDs. And so we couldn't get in, so we went and saw Shine. And my friend was, like, really disappointed because she's this, like, cool chick. Um, and I saw it and I loved it. It's a beautiful movie. And I, like, got really into independent cinema because of, because of that. <laughs> it's still, like, one of my favorite movies. And, I I mean, I eventually saw Scream, I think, probably when it came on DVD. But I just think that's funny. That's, like, so, my like, Scream story. your failure to see Scream introduced you to a whole different world uh-huh. of movies. Yeah, that's like, awesome. I was like, screw being cool. Like, I, I like this. That. Yeah. I love that. Um, when I finally saw Scream, I... I don't actually remember that much. I remember thinking it was a really cool movie and it was really different, but I liked Shine more. <laughs> I mean, that scene with Jeffrey Rush being killed in the opening scene is very shocking. Yeah. <laughs> very shocking. Especially when he's wearing that blonde wig and he's lifted up in the garage door. Well, now I wish Jeffrey Rush played the Drew Barrymore part in the very opening. <laughs> Blasphemy. He was originally cast in that role. Yeah. And Seth, what's your history with Scream? None. <laughs> I did not. Moving on. Weirdly, like, as with Blair Witch Project, I was very aware of it coming out. 96 is when you said it came out? That is correct. Yeah, so I would have been in, like, sixth grade, and I know I heard about it from all my friends incessantly. 
Um, but I was even more behind the curve with that than I was with music that was not from Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I just did not see this movie when it came out. And I, like Becky was talking about, I definitely did um, sneak and was snuck R-rated movies to watch, mostly through HBO, um, mostly thanks to my dad. Um, even with that creepy opening? Even with the hand through coming out of the ground, um, I, I braved that in order to watch such classics as, you know, Terminator 2, a Showgirls later on. But is it, Wait, is that the sequel to Showgirls? Showgirls later on? <laughs> oh, God. I wish. <laughs> Shower Girls. Um, but no, I, for whatever reason, I did not watch Scream. The first one I didn't see until after I saw 2 and 3. What? Why? Just, were you lost? <laughs> I was a very lost boy. No, did you were you lost in the plot? Um no, I was just I I was caught up in the drama of it. I feel like the Scream franchise is one of the ones I've only seen like on cable up until now. It was like a movie cuz it was a movie that was playing so much on HBO. Well, I very distinctly remember sitting in a health class in junior high. That's all. That's that's a good story, right? It's a no. really good story. No, like, I, I was on the edge of my seat. I was listening to uh, some girls talk about how they'd just seen this really scary rated R movie. And I had not seen any rated R movies in theaters at the time. So for me, like hearing them talk about this was very like, it was a very forbidden thing. And I was like, oh, I'll never see a movie like that. But I was very interested in hearing their take on it. And it was like Becky said, it was like this really like cool thing. Like, oh, we just saw this, you know, hip, scary new movie. But then that following June, Scream was released for a video rental, and my mom mm-hmm. suggested that we rent it. And that was kind of a surprise at the time, because, again, I hadn't seen really any rated R movies at this time. I might have seen, like, a couple. But um, my mom really loved, like, true crime and serial killers, so I think she was kind of into it. And I used to, like, make her tell me the details of the rated R movies she saw, like, just so I could, like, get a feel for what they were. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, and... And a little creepy. Much like Becky's relationship with her mother. A little disturbing (laughs) after the fact, but... Adorable. It's like, mother, uh, share danger with me. (laughs) Instruct me in the ways of peril. So even just watching this movie on video was kind of a big deal for me. Because I I felt like a, you know, a big kid for watching this. And I remember we were sitting on the couch watching this movie. It was like an afternoon on a weekend. And the scene with Drew Barrymore is on, and all of a sudden, the front door of our house just, like, creaks open. What? And, you know, I get up and look, and I'm like, oh, there's no one there. It must have just been the wind. And How naive, Chris. Then we go back to watching this movie where, like, all the characters are saying exactly that thing, and then there's actually, like, a killer. And then my mom and I were murdered. No, we weren't, actually. We're alive. It's fine. There was no killer. Are you killer. sure? Yes. I would love to be responsible for the first ghost podcast. I thought you were going to say for murdering me. (laughs) I know. I totally thought you were going that direction. (laughs) You people are crazy. I would never do such a thing. If you're listening, call 911, please. It's too late. We've already uploaded it. I like how Seth kills us and then edits the episode and releases it. (laughs) I'm going to leave in the part where you say not to murder you. It's just throwing everyone off for a little bit. Spoiler alert, Seth is Ghostface. All right, so I have one more Scream story from my formative years. A scream story? Mm, I wasn't going to go there, but I'm glad that someone did. I'm not glad. <laughs> so around this same time, I used to write emails to my friend Larissa. And we were friends with a girl named Hillary who happened to be a Mormon. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And uh, 
as you may know, Mormons are not really allowed to see any rated R movies ever. So on a whim, in this email, I just started writing out a script for Scream starring our friend Hillary. And in it, like, the killer calls up and asks her if she likes scary movies. And she's like, no, I'm not allowed to watch rated R movies. <laughs> he's like, what's your favorite scary movie? And she says something like, Bambi. And the killer gets mad because he can't play his horror movie trivia game. And anyway, like, this writing this thing just, like, really amused me. And I was intending to just stop it there, but I just kept going. And I was having so much fun writing that I saved it and continued the entire thing, casting all of the rest of our friends in the parts of the Scream characters. Um, like, our friend Desiree um, was not fat, but would always complain that she was fat. So I had her <laughs> be the girl that got stuck in the garage door because I was a mean, mean friend. Um, of course, I was the film geek Randy in here. So... After watching Scream at the age of 13, which was the same age that Kevin Williamson was when he first saw Halloween, um, I wrote my very first screenplay, which was really by accident because I wasn't intending to write like movie scripts. I didn't really know anything about movie scripts, but um, I just got inspired by Scream and um, continued on writing. My first scripts were all parodies of movies that I wrote for my friends. So... I don't know, if not for Scream, I may never have written a screenplay, and then I'd be earning a living somehow instead of doing a free podcast with you I feel people. like you'd be really into taxidermy. Yeah, probably. So I, I can thank Kevin Williamson for inspiring me to write my first screenplay and be a broke person for the rest of my life. So, all right, we'll be getting into our analysis of the Scream movies, starting with the first Scream. I would like to issue a spoiler warning, I guess, because we're going to be talking about all of the identities of scream yeah, killers and stuff. It's spoilers from here on in. Yeah, we don't we don't dance around that. It's it's uh, Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich. So sorry if you haven't seen Scream in the last twenty years. Uh, Saying it so, Skeet. And I will also say that I'm a little nervous because I love Scream so much, and I'm terrified that my my love is going to be challenged today by my it is <laughs> by my co co host. Your love is challenged. There's a lot of good things to say, and there's a lot of other things nope, to say. Nope, there's no other things to say. <laughs> Just good things. So, Scream was released on December 20th, 1996, which was just about exactly uh, 20 years ago. So, we're celebrating the 20th Scream anniversary. Flawless. Yep. It was really well done. It was made on a budget of $14 million and grossed $103 million in the U.S. and $173 million worldwide. So, um, yeah, it was a big deal. It, um, it was pretty well-reviewed by critics. It has a 65 on Metacritic. And even though it opened, like, pretty poorly at just, like, over $6 million at the box office, it definitely, like, carried on and became a phenomenon of the year. So Scream stars Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich... David Arquette, Jamie Kennedy, and Matthew Lillard takes place in the fictional town of Woodsboro following Sidney Prescott one year after the murder of her mother as the bodies start piling up thanks to a mysterious ghost face killer with a penchant for horror movie trivia. The tagline was, Someone has taken their love of scary movies one step too far. By the end of this podcast, you will all agree that that person is me. I was taking a look at where horror was in 1996, and some of the other horror movies that came out were From Dusk Till Dawn, The Craft, and The Frighteners. But in terms of, like, slasher movies, the 90s were garbage. It was all, like, really direct-to-video. Like, can you guys even think of a notable 90s horror movie? I know they re-released The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> um, that doesn't count. 
The faculty came after this, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was that had to be like ninety seven or ninety eight. The sixth sense was ninety nine. Yeah. But so like I, so before nineteen ninety six. Even not having seen it when it came out, like that is kind of the milestone for when horror was once again like a relevant genre in the nineties. Probably Child's Play too, because I think Child's Play came out in the late eighties. Yeah. I so maybe so. I, I maybe kind of schlocky like schlocky horror movies like that came out in the 90s like mm-hmm. scream was there were very a lot glossy of like, very hip was that was not what the usual thing was no yeah it, like if anything it was like the like really like last legs sequels to nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th mm-hmm. i don't even know like what number they were on by this point but it was not oh yeah it was west, not a vital franchise west craven's new nightmare i remember liking a lot because there was a lot of fun special effects and that was somewhere in the mid 90s mm-hmm. And even that was also very self-referential. Very, like, very. Horror was already yeah. kind of a joke at this point. So I think when you're talking about Scream, the most logical place and the most obvious place to start is with that opening scene, which is so iconic. Uh, Drew Barrymore getting the call, the first call from the killer. Uh, hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Uh Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? That's exactly the word I was going to use is iconic. If you recall, all of the marketing for the movie had Drew Barrymore on the poster you know, her name was on the poster. She was promoted as being the star of the movie. Oh, I very, like, I very much, rem- not even having seen the movie, I very much remember mm-hmm. her being the centerpiece of the advertising. Yeah, and yeah. she's in the very first scene. And I thought that was really brilliant marketing. I thought that was a brilliant way to start the movie. Um, it's not only giving us, you know, showing us the tropes of horror movies, saying it outright, um, you know, don't look behind, like, I don't remember the exact, like, don't go up the stairs when you should be looking in the closet or, yeah. know, you probably know. <laughs> don't run up the stairs when you should be running out the front door. Yeah, yeah. like, things like that. Um, not only are they doing... I can quote any line verbatim for you, but... <laughs> not only are they flipping that and showing the audience, like, we we all know horror movies, but we're also going to challenge your expectations and kill off the person that was promoted to be the star of this movie, which really as far as I can recall, has only really happened in Psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I and thought that it was, was... And that was in like act two of that movie. Yeah. They built up to that. They did not build from the starting point of that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, she probably does have as much screen time as just about anyone else in that movie. Like Janet Lee. I mean, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to um, Drew Barrymore, who obviously is only in about 12 minutes of this movie. And then it's really Nev Campbell's movie. Um, and Drew although, Barrymore was a big star at the time, too. Yeah, she so was. She wasn't an up-and-comer. So it was like, this was a Drew Barrymore movie. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes in the movie, she's dead. Well, she was originally attached to play Sidney Prescott. And then um, I think she had a, some kind of conflict and couldn't do the movie. But she still was really passionate about the project. So she said, okay, I'll just do the part of Casey in the beginning. And they realized that that was really an opportunity to throw everyone off. Because the biggest star in the movie would get killed in the opening. And I think, of course, they love that because, you know, this movie is very self-referential and they're doing the exact same thing that Psycho did so well. Well, and this being, like, really the first time that I've seen the first movie the whole way through, like, it it 
really blew me away. Not only, you know, kind of the, you could call it stunt casting of Drew Barrymore in that role, you know, but it's also, I think, a really smart thing because it ultimately, Scream ultimately is a franchise about kind of mocking the conventions of the horror and slasher genre, even as it's kind of going down those same roads as the slasher genre does. Um, but it literally from that very first scene, it is mocking those conventions. Like there's even a moment where, um, where the killer tells her over the phone that she should just go outside and check for the mysterious noise. Mm -hmm. When like anyone who's seen any slasher flick knows that that is like an invitation to death. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And, and it's in uh, not knowing how balls out the even the first scene of the first movie would go. It was really pretty impressive that they kind of went for it from from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like this opening is a perfect mini movie. Like you're, I mean, it, it, really it would be is. kind of a dark place to end a movie, but <laughs> like, it would be a great short on its own. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even oh, though yeah. Casey Becker as a character is barely mentioned again, I feel like this death scene resonates throughout. This movie in particular, but also just the entire series is this scene is so gripping and iconic that like you really don't forget it. You hear scream and you think of Drew Barrymore, like not only just her, but like that blonde haircut, like that sweater that she's wearing, like just certain images are so ingrained. To put a finer, even a finer point on the images aspect of it, the moment that she dies, the camera pushes in on her really quickly, and there is actually a flash of a flashbulb at her in that moment when she's dying, Mm -hmm. which is not like, that's even beyond like pointing out the conventions of the slasher genre. That's even like a kind of a lurid, like almost a paparazzi-ish kind of like you know, pop culture reference, if anything, to like the way that people kind of love seeing gruesome scenes. Yeah. Like, and, and it was like, I had to write it down because it was a very specific thing. And it, and it, I like rewound it and rewatched it. Like it would just happen very briefly, but it was very kind of on the nose in that way, but just very referential to things beyond just that genre. Which might be kind of an accident because this movie had a hard time with the MPAA getting an R rating. It was constantly like sent to them and they kept giving it an nc-17 so that's one of the scenes they had to cut every other frame as they were zooming into her just to make it briefer they had to cut a lot of things out just violence out of this movie and they didn't necessarily cut scenes out or even images out but more just like how long they held on certain images and so her body hanging from the tree is one of those that they had to cut down a lot just to get an r rating wow that's and I, i think another thing that's so important about this opening is just how brutal it is and how sad it is like i think the the main thing that makes the screen movies stand out in the slasher genre besides obviously the humor element is just that murder matters in these movies like the murder of this girl like people react to it in the you know in the following scenes as you know they're actually upset by it but and you see her parents like react to this like that's something you almost never see in a horror movie is like people actually like grieving and not just like shocked in a I'm scared way but shocked in a like this is the most horrible brutal thing I've ever seen my daughter hanging from a tree like to dwell on that kind of horror is it's sad I mean it resonates throughout the rest of this movie and as well as the mur- 
the murder of Sydney's mother too, which also you don't see, but it resonates throughout this movie as just like this thing that's obviously, it just lends so much weight to this movie that you rarely, rarely find in a horror movie. We'll see. So we can, we'll get into the kind of heavier meanings later on in in more ways, but also there's a kind of slight counterpoint to that, that I think is important to tease out because it really is apparent really from the first scene of this first movie, that even though the violence is very blatantly gruesome and has a lot of weight to it, you know, and definitely affects the characters in this world very heavily, it's also violence that has no motive. Um, There's even a line in this first movie that was one of the lines that I made sure to note, which is that, oh, it's scarier when there's no motive. Mm Um, and, and so it was interesting in a way because usually in the scary movies that, you know, are very gruesome, both the violence is, is gruesome and shocking and affects the characters, but there's a motive behind the killer. The killer is taking, you know, some kind of vengeance or is on some supernatural revenge trip or something like that. But in this, there, it really is remorseless. It is without any kind of guiding principle the killer has no like grand strategy beyond it like so it it was interesting in that sense because it is both violence that has a lot of dramatic weight but there's no particular mission or reason behind it yeah and in that way it just reminded me of how i feel about the movie zodiac um which i think is one of the scariest movies i've ever seen in my life and it's not because the scenes are scary but it is because you don't find out who the killer is and you don't find out why he's doing what he's doing and these attacks feel so random. And that, to me, is the most terrifying thing. And yeah, I think that that's kind of mirrored here in a way. We'll talk about the sequels, but they do tend to over-explain motivation in the sequels, which I do think kind of lessens the the impact. Um, The last thing that I kind of want to talk about in this opening scene is... The way that the screen movies, particularly the first two, set you up as an audience member. Because Drew Barrymore, her character, is getting ready to watch a movie. She's making popcorn. You constantly see, like, the blank screen of her TV that's, like, about to watch a movie. Like, you know that she has the, the tapes in there. And it just puts you in her shoes in this really visceral way. Because you're watching this movie, and she's about to watch a movie. They're both scary movies, and... It, there's just this like kind of funhouse mirror of the way that that sets you up. It, I think it makes it a lot more heightened and a lot more scary that this could be you. Like at any moment, your phone could ring and someone could be quizzing you on the screen movies. I think what's really smart about these movies is that you, they really do want you to feel like you are a character in this movie because they treat the the characters in this movie as though they're they live in real life where real life has horror movies. Mm-hmm. If you look at other slasher movies, it's like they it's like horror movies don't exist in that world exactly. and they don't know not to, you know, look behind them or answer the phone and do this thing and all these tropes because the horror movies don't exist in the world. But horror movies do exist in the world of Scream. So when Drew Barrymore or Randy or any other characters are saying you shouldn't do that because that's what a the killer will be there or that's a stupid thing to do because of these reasons. That's how we feel too because we watch the same horror movies. We know all the same things. So that's why it's almost like, oh shit, like that could be me. 
Absolutely, yeah. Well, and, and it's, that's really interesting because that's that's kind of breaking the fourth wall, both in terms of the story that they're telling and the conventions of that story, but also breaking the fourth wall in terms of just directly addressing the audience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like it's it's both the characters are both aware of the genre and the ways that they're subverting it, and talking to the audience about the experience that the audience is having in watching the movie. Yeah, I, it shows that the writers and director, the people behind the movie, think that the audience is smart. They're not stupid. They know these things about horror movies, so they're using that to their advantage to build this story. And it's more realistic because when crazy things happen to us or in the world around us, I think we often relate them to movies. And we often do say, oh, this is like that movie. I mean, even something like 9-11 was like, it was hard not to like remember certain disaster movies where buildings are falling. And, you know, maybe that's sad in a way, but like these days, like almost anything that happens in the news in some way reminds us of a movie that we've seen. And I think that's often how we end up talking to each other about them and even relieving some of the tension is, you know, through some kind of humor of cliches. So the last thing I'll say about the opening scene is just that um, something that Wes Craven said in the commentary is that to make Drew Barrymore so upset in that scene because she's constantly like crying and on the edge of her seat is he knew she was a big animal rights activist. So he like kept oh my God. mentioning things about animal torture. <laughs> oh my God. In particular, a, I guess it was like a video or a story or it was probably a story that she'd heard of a dog being lit on fire. So he kept saying like, I'm lighting the match and she would just like burst into tears. So that was very craven of you, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a craven kind of guy. Wow. So I think like as you go forward in this movie, I mean it it's definitely evident in the opening scene, but you care about these characters. Like I really want Drew Barrymore's character to survive when she sees her parents and she's like just a you know a few seconds away from calling out to them and being okay. That like I really want her to make it. Like I'm heartbroken when she gets stabbed and that stab is so brutal. And I think that goes Throughout the rest of the movie, too, is like when once you meet Sydney and her friends is like you really get sucked up into their world. And I think these movies are entertaining, even if there were no horror element to them. Like I would still be interested in like hanging out with Sydney and Tatum and all of their friends because their dialogue is fun. It's you know, they're smart people. They're entertaining. I'm as invested in them as I am in a John Hughes movie, which don't have, you know, people being murdered. I think this is where we're going to have to disagree. (laughs) As I said, I like a lot about this movie Uh and I think it is very iconic and very fresh what was going on at the time. But my, my biggest problem with it is that there's a couple problems. I don't believe anybody. I don't, I don't believe yes. anybody is a human in this movie. Nobody? I'm not I don't believe anybody is a human. I feel like everyone speaks like the same person coming out of a screenwriter. I feel like everyone is the screenwriter talking at me. No one acts like a real teenage person. It's it's just so on the nose and so meta and so one step removed with the meta-ness that I don't care about anybody. Hmm. Like, I don't want to hang out with them. And when, like, the Rose McGowan's character Tatum. dies, yeah. like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I, I want her to die because, oh, it's a death scene. <laughs> you know, like, that's all I get out of it. Like, I honestly, I mean, by the end of the franchise, but, like, even by the end of the movie, I'm like, I don't care about Sydney. I just don't. Really? I don't think of them as real people, which I think is the biggest flaw of the movie for me is that I don't care if anyone lives or dies. Hmm. So see, again, like having, this was the first time that I saw the trilogy, quote unquote, uh, in one, in consecutive order. Um, And 
and I will totally agree with most of Becky's critique, which is that I think even uh, or because it is such a consciously self-consciously meta and aware and self-deconstructing version of this kind of genre film, um, I do think it deliberately shortchanges character development and character arcs and any of the typical kinds of things that would um, ground you in the kind of dramatic experience of the characters. But where I would differ with you, Becky, is that I think... Uh, Gail Weathers and Sydney Prescott are the really the only heart in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, I can agree with that. I just see, still from, don't care about them. <laughs> I don't think it's an entirely successful trilogy, um, but it is a mostly pretty satisfying trilogy to me because Gail and Sydney are kind of the dueling like yin and yang blood that is actually flowing in this franchise. Yeah. Um, and the kind of back and forth of, and specifically even the back and forth of their relationships with each other, but also kind of their like triangle against uh, David Arquette's character, Dewey. Um, that was kind of enough to pull me through the franchise in a dramatic sense and, and have me, care somewhat about the stakes. But I will definitely agree with you, Becky, that the stakes for, like, Rose McGowan's character are so much lower, like, you know she's going to die. But even with the other characters who survive the first movie and don't get killed until later sequels, um, I don't think that enough attention was given to developing them dramatically. Um, I think the most attention was given to feeding them very, again, very self-aware, very ironically put um, references to other horror movies. There's like a reference to Wes Carpenter, so like a transposing of Wes Craven and John Carpenter. Um, references to like The Exorcist. There's so much attention in the writing that's put into the genre awareness of it that I think it detracts from really adding stakes to these characters in this story and and making it so that their deaths have weight. So I totally agree with you that like specifically Rose McGowan's death just has no weight to it whatsoever for me as as like gruesome as it is. You just don't really give a shit. All right. I well, I agree with you to an extent. As I think that to me, like Rose McGowan's death has weight because of Sydney. Like I'm so anchored in Sydney, and that I know that she needs her best friend to like cope with all of this. And I'm so sad for Sydney that Rose McGowan is dead. I'm not necessarily sad for the Tatum character herself because she is a bit broad. Sure. I guess I just don't care. I mean, why do you like Sydney? I just she just is kind of a bland character to me. I just don't find her interesting. I think Nev Campbell does a great job of just selling her inner turmoil. I think setting her up as someone whose mother was murdered a year ago and is dealing with this trauma and it kind of makes her an outsider in high school. Even when the story begins, I mean, I instantly identify with that. I mean, I think the screen movies. All of them, I guess, all four of them are really about trauma and that character of Sydney's trauma. And each movie deals with that trauma in a slightly different way. And I find that really interesting. In this one, it's very, it's that first trauma. It's this horrible thing she went through that she's been trying to move on. The movies are also very much 
about sexuality, like this movie is. Um, you know, it starts with her and her boyfriend, Billy, and he obviously wants to go further than she does. And she is a little cold toward him and not wanting to be intimate with him. And I think a large part of that is because her mother had this reputation for being promiscuous that she's in denial about. She still has this idolized view of her mother. And, but everyone else is talking about how, what a whore her mother was. And she just doesn't want to hear it. And instead is clinging to this idea of her mother and clinging to her own virginity in the same way. I think she's holding on to this purity and this innocence that throughout, as the movie goes on, you know, she ends up giving into, you know, sleeping with her boyfriend. And I think that's kind of representational of her giving into a certain dark side and a certain truth about her mother which gives her the strength to kind of fight off the killers in the end. Like, if she had remained the virgin in kind of a flip of the cliche of, like, you're supposed to remain a virgin in order to um, survive a horror movie, is, like, I don't think she would have had the strength to do what she does in the end and to take on these these guys who are very lewd and craven and not Wes Craven, but just generally craven and, and very... Just like they're basically General animals. Craven Wes's uncle <laughs> in the army. I think he was. So I felt like she was just she just had sex because the audience knows. Oh no, she's having sex. That means she's doomed because people that have sex die in horror movies, and that's why they put that in there. No, I think there's so much more. Well, but to that. see, but Becky, the there is a symbolic weight behind the act of sex as it exists in the traditional horror movie. The act of having sex and and losing your virginity in a horror movie is like the symbolic representation of getting cast out of the Garden of Eden. It's eating from the tree of knowledge, like eating that fruit of the knowledge of the world and learning that humanity has fallen, learning that we are sinful creatures. Um, so that's always the thing that takes on kind of symbolic weight in horror movies. That's a There's like a dramatic reason underpinning in horror movies, why having sex is a thing that makes you open to being killed, because that is like one of the original sins is. Yeah, I get that. And her mother <laughs> is very, very punished for it. Only having seen the trilogy for this first time, I don't necessarily think it's a completely successful attempt at constructing a trilogy based around this character. And yeah. But I see where they're like building that out. Because the third movie then really ends up being the story of Sydney tracking down her mother, trying to understand her mother's past, which in the end is the thing that has driven the entire trajectory of the whole franchise. Is and the whole genre, because it started with Psycho, which is very much obsessed with mother issues. So I find this a very yes. interesting echo of that. Yes, it's 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 both a... Both an echo within the story of the Scream movies and definitely an element of that genre that goes through the whole genre. Yeah, I mean, Halloween has, like, the opening where Michael Myers kills his sister, who I believe is topless. And, like, that's a very weird family sexual thing. I think those elements are very present in Exorcist as well. Sexuality is a very... Also referenced in the Disturbing, story, yeah. yeah. And even the mask of the killer you know, which is this ghost, I think it really speaks to the, how this movie is obsessed with the ghosts of the past and trauma from the past. Sydney is literally, like, haunted by her past, even, you know, without an actual killer. And this, these movies are haunted by the past because they're so 
informed by all of these horror movies that have come before that I find that a really interesting echo. The Sydney character is, is kind of faced with what the audience is faced with as well as all this baggage of horror in the past. I feel like I would have gotten all of this more if the writing wasn't so winky winky the whole movie. You think it's a distraction? Yeah, because I'm not, I don't feel genuinely about anybody because I don't believe they're real and they're just doing quips and winking at horror movie conventions or, you know, breaking the fourth wall in some way. That That's why I just don't care about the fate of anybody. <laughs> I guess so. But I mean, in a way that to me, that makes them more relatable because that's often how I talked with my, I mean, I'll talk to you in like winky horror movie references sometimes. But it's not, yeah, it's still see, not, they're not real. There's never a moment of, that they're real people. This is where I think Becky's critique really holds a lot of weight for me. Like I wrote down a line that's um, when uh, Sydney is first getting kind of hot and heavy with Billy. Um, Billy's the kind of boyfriend who will, you know, sneak up to her second story window in the middle of the night and crawl through the window and try to get some heavy petting in. And um, Sydney has a line where she says, would you settle for a PG-13 relationship? Yeah. Um, and, and honestly... Like, agreeing with you, Becky, I feel like there's a strain of this that is very Aaron Sorkin-esque um, in the sense that everyone talks like the writer. And it's like... That's true, yeah. Yeah, we see what you're doing, and we see what you're doing. Like, every other line is kind of drawing reference to, look at how clever I'm being in referencing Wes Craven and John Carpenter at the same time. Look at how, like, meta and postmodern I'm being. I think it's way more show-offy than it needs to be. And I also kind of agree with Becky that a lot of times it kind of stands in the way of feeling for the characters. Or, or feeling scared, because honestly, like, I'm not scared no, by true. this movie. I'm scared when there are jump scares, when all of a sudden there's ghost face right there. Like, that's, you know, a little shocking. But I don't feel like it's earned. I feel like, I feel like a, a little bit in the opening, that's gory and surprising. And even after she gets stabbed... Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm caught off guard and I wasn't expecting that. And I felt like that was the most, most successful part of the series, honestly, was that opening. See, so it's not until the second movie that I am at all scared by anything that's happening. And we'll like, we'll get to that, but it's, but that's a really important point to me because that scene is mm -hmm. such a scary movie, but the first one does not scare me at all. Yeah. I'm not scared because I don't care about anybody and because it's just so, I keep saying winky winky, but that's how it is to me. Like. If, if it's not a jump scare, then I'm not, like, feeling any sort of tension. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can definitely understand. As an adult, by the way, I think when I was younger, maybe I felt more scared. But watching this as an adult, I just, yeah, I don't feel it. I mean, I can understand. I've seen Scream dozens of times, probably. I mean, I, I don't watch it a lot anymore, but I definitely watched it a lot when I was a teenager. So I had a lot of time to get invested in these characters. I know I felt a lot of these things, you know, even the first time watching it. But yeah, I think for me, I just have a different take on it where the self-referential nature of them makes them more relatable to me and makes them more real to me than characters in a movie that they don't reference horror at all, like we were talking about before. is because we know we've all seen these movies. And this is how I would react to these situations. I think I would be like, oh, it's just like this movie that I saw. Like, ha ha ha, you know? There's a way to do that, though, that you still sound like a teenager. When I feel like every single person sounds like Kevin Williamson is speaking through every single person. They, none, No one feels different to me. 
And, like, we talk about movies all the time, but we're still, like, real people. <laughs> well, spoiler alert. Oh, Kevin no. Williamson has been writing <laughs> my dialogue all these times. Chris just pulled off his face. <laughs> Which and underneath is Ghostface. No, Ghostface <laughs> is underneath my real. That was the real, the real twist I was not here. expecting that. Wow. <laughs> so as we wrap up um, talking about the first movie, Scream, um, I'll just give you guys some random trivia. Brittany Murphy auditioned for Sydney. How do you think Brittany Murphy would have done as Sydney? She might have been fine. Who's to know? And Janine Garofalo and Brooke Shields both uh, were strongly what? considered for Gale Weathers. <laughs> Whoa! I mean, I can see that. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Janine Garofalo, I think, would have been too comedic. I could kind of see Brooke Shields, though. I think she actually would have I been could totally Gale. have seen Brooke Shields. But, like, Janine Garofalo is too funny. Also, how good is Courtney Cox in this movie? Like, this was, like, I think season... Three of friends. I, I, okay, so we're not listening to that. I, I fucking loathe friends with the uh-huh. burning of a thousand suns. Um, I absolutely adore Courtney Cox and later Courtney Cox Arquette in this film and all of the subsequent films. Like, and then back to Courtney Cox because they got divorced. And then back to Courtney Cox. <laughs> yeah, you see the rise and fall. And now of she's her just Courtney. Romance. <laughs> and now she's just Court- Courtney. Um, just one trivia thing that I want to point out is there is a real burning hatred of Sharon Stone. There are three all, references to her in this movie. Movies. Yeah. Not just Wait, this I movie, in the sequels one... as well. Oh, are there? Oh, it's... I don't know if it's a hatred. Well, let, let's hear your justification. And no, like, all I remember is, like, referring derisively to Sharon Stone. I as a whore, the... kind of, yeah. I remember yeah, a, like, a as reference a to, like, you know, basic instincts, but, like, was that it? They say that Sydney's mother was no Sharon... I believe like the exact line like, is that her mother was flashing her shit all around town like she was Sharon Stone. And let's face no it, Sharon Sydney, Stone. your mother was no Sharon Stone. And then I swear That's a compliment. A, no, but I think there's, there's another, another reference there to it in like either Scream 2 or Scream 3 or both. It's not Skeet, but it's... um Skeet. Skeet. That's a real skeet, name, not skeet. a name that Kevin let's Williamson Let's talk about the up. heartthrob that was Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> no, Matthew Lillard, I think, makes reference to Sharon Stone in either Scream 2 or Scream 3. He's only in the first one, so... But there's no. another... No. Yes. He's in two. No. He's not in two? He dies in one. Yeah. I don't believe you. Are you really going to challenge gonna... <laughs> me on Scream <laughs> Facts? Because should... you will lose every scream fucking facts. time. Scream Facts. Meg Ryan is also referenced multiple times in this movie, which just tells you that it was 1996. Yeah. Wasn't the. As if their hair and clothes couldn't tell you. Wasn't the ghost face killer mask based on Meg Ryan? (laughs) It was not. Um, It was actually based on a Halloween costume that actually existed. So in the original script, it just kind of said a scary mask, like a ghost face or something. And so everyone was thinking that it would be white because ghosts are white. So for a long time... Why has it got to be white? For a long time, like, the ghost was just going to be white. And I, like, I can't imagine this movie, like, working with, like, <laughs> white ghost face. You, but, I mean, he does have a white face. Do you mean a white... No, white costume. A like, white costume. All white, yeah. Look, white ghost face is never okay. That is cultural appropriation. Well, it is scarier that the face is white, but the body is black because he can hide in shadows and it looks like just a, a scary head. The original mask was called the Peanut-Eyed Ghost. That's the the name of the mask that when it was sold as a Halloween costume, which luckily they're not just like, oh, the Peanut-Eyed Ghost is calling again. Who didn't grow up telling stories around the campfire about the Peanut-Eyed Ghost? I did not. Me? (laughs) (laughs) You neither, Becky? No. Nope. 
as you were saying about the killer's motives earlier, they had a debate actually of whether the killer should have a clear motive or not a motive. So they decided that the character of Stu, played by Matthew Lillard, is the one who doesn't have a motive and just goes along with it because of whatever his friend says. And it's Billy is the one who kind of does have the motive of um, his mother or his father sleeping with Sydney's I mean, that's better because, honestly, if there was no motive at all, I would have felt, like, annoyed at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fine that one of them doesn't, but as, as long as someone does. And they're both kind of nuts. So it's fine that Stu has no motive and is kind of crazy and following his friend. But I feel like there has... Like, why am I watching this movie then? Well, but then one thing that kind of hits on for me what was kind of another selling point. And again, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't argue that it was perfectly successful in the way that it was done and implemented by the writer across the trilogy. But I liked the fact that they, in each of the screen movies, they played with motives and potential reasons why really almost every one of the characters could have been the killer. And they do that in different ways throughout the the sequels. And again, like I, I don't think it was perfectly successful because I don't think they put an equal amount of time into developing each of these characters. But I did like from kind of a horror standpoint how they did deliberately keep you in suspense. And there would even be moments where it seemed like they were about to reveal a particular character, especially like Dewey, David Arquette's character, like as potentially being the killer and kind of pull back from that at the last second. And I like when scary movies kind of play with your expectations of that. Yeah, I I think in all of the scream movies, like there's not really a moment when you're like, oh, I know who it is. And you have to wait another 20 minutes for them to actually reveal it. Like I think genuinely like all of the killers are pretty uh, surprising. Like even, you know, you'll think it's Skeet Ulrich's character throughout this movie several times, but then you're also like, well, that's too obvious. And they do a really good job of balancing that, I think. And when you go back and watch the movie again, knowing who the killers are, there actually is a lot of, you know, significant looks between the two of them where it makes it rewarding upon a second viewing. Is like, you're like, oh, it almost is like really obvious that these are the killers. And yet it actually isn't when you're watching the movie. And I thought it was um, surprising and refreshing that there were two murderers because mm-hmm. I was not expecting that. Yeah, and I think all of the movies, the first movie in particular, because it was the first one, do a good job of even like not letting you in on how many murderers there are. And I mean, it's it's interesting how Ghostface is almost a completely separate character from whoever the killer ends up being. And the Ghostface is consistent throughout the movies even though you'll notice like slight changes in the way he acts and the way he's barely though. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's that voice is consistent. It's obviously, it's the same actor who you have to, you have to give a lot of credit to Roger Jackson, who they cast temporarily just thinking like, Oh, well we'll replace him when we actually make the movie. And then obviously he's so awesome at that voice that, and his voice is very iconic, like very memorable voice. And he is by far scarier than any of the actual actors who, play Ghostface or much more memorable as a character than any of those Well, that's the only that's the only avenue where the personality of the killer is established at all. Mm -hmm. You know, is in that voice performance. Yeah, and I think that's just a really interesting thing that's it's it's very surreal, but it's almost like the spirit of Ghostface carries on through these movies regardless of who it is. It's 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 almost like they're being possessed by this this ghost character, even though that's obviously not literally what's happening. So I guess that's a good time to move on to uh, Scream 2. Another uh, example of this taking place in the 90s is that Heather Graham is in Scream 2. Yes, she <laughs> is. Yes. 
So Scream, so Scream 2 was released on December 12th, 1997, which was um, less than a year after the original Scream premiered. So very fast turnaround there. Wait, was it already in the can when Scream oh, no, 1 came out? no, not at all. It was only based on the popularity of the first Scream that Scream 2 was even made. So they just made That's it very, very quickly. insane turnaround. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. And so... Um, the original Scream was in theaters for eight solid months. Like, it was a big <laughs> phenomenon. Like I said, it you know, it only grossed a few million dollars its first weekend, but it ended up going over a million dollars. It was over the 13th highest grossing film of 1986, so it made more money than movies like Space Jam, The English Patient, and Eraser. I'm surprised it's not higher, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely had a bigger cultural impact than I think its box office would say, but that was also yeah. in the 90s when 100 million was pretty significant for almost any movie, like... Scream 2 was budgeted at 24 million and opened to 32.9 million, which is a really wow. big opening yeah. at the time. In fact, Scream 2 was considered such a phenomenon that Titanic and uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond movie, both moved their release dates out of Scream 2's way to the next week because they were afraid that Scream 2 would take up oh, their box damn. office. Wow. Which is true. Scream 2 opened bigger than Titanic did. Um, huh. Titanic was not a huge hit until like. Uh, a couple weeks later. Like, it got a bigger following, but its first weekend was, like, relatively small compared to, like, obviously how much money it ended up making. Where Scream 2 was, like, really big out of the gate and made almost exactly as much money as the first movie did. Drink with your brain. That's our motto. Who are you calling for? What if I said you? What if I said goodbye? Why would you want to do that? Why do you always answer a question with a question? Yeah, and I'm impatient. Look, do you want to leave a message for someone? Do you want to die tonight, Cece? Omega Beta Zeta. I would like to start off by saying this cast is nuts. This cast is completely insane. Heather Graham, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, who I, none of these people, by the way, I I remembered. Sarah Michelle Gellar, is that how you say it? Luke Wilson, Portia de Rossi, (laughs) Timothy Oliphant. It's Timothy Oliphant. What are these people? Laurie Metcalf. These people are in this movie? There are too many people in this film. There is too much talent. And that's because that Scream was such a phenomenon. Like, Sarah Michelle Gellar signed on without knowing who she would play or what her part was going to be. She was <laughs> oh. like, Scream, I'm in. Like, Get me Scream. I think I saw this movie in the theaters, but I did not remember any of these movie, uh, any of these people being in this movie. All I remembered was that Randy was in it and um, we so yeah, Jamie Kennedy and yeah. then uh, Neff Campbell. That's it. I don't remember any of these people. I can't believe Portia de Rossi is in this movie. Yeah, it's very it's random that, that people, like Rebecca Gayhart actually, who is like opposite Portia de Rossi mm-hmm. as the other sorority girl, she auditioned for okay. Sydney. And in this movie, she auditioned for like three other characters and didn't get any of them. So she, I guess they just cast her as a random sorority girl. She was that desperate to be in this movie. Random fact is that she ended up being the killer in Urban Legend, which was like a oh, big scream ripoff. Spoiler Urban Legend. Yeah, sorry, oh we're God, spoiling for- all of these movies. I forgot Urban Legend. I don't know if I saw, I don't Tara think I Reed saw that Tara Reid was in that one. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's, um, that's we, a, worth a watch at Can some we point. talk all the way about the first scene of Scream 2? Right, I have, I mean, I... Spoiler, I don't like this movie, but I like the opening scene of this movie. Well, you I, better. <laughs> I, I do like no. the opening scene a lot with Jada Pinkett Smith. 
who's also in this movie. <laughs> I feel like these movies are as good as they could get, though, for a movie that wants to be very meta. And the, the set pieces are great, especially these openings that are, you know, they're at the movie based on the events of the last movie. And then you get murdered at that movie. Like, I feel like these are very inventive scenarios that they make up. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think overall, it's hard to make a movie that's this meta and have it be any more artful or have any more of this going on in subtext than something like this would have. Mm-hmm. Um, even now, if you were to go totally independent, if you made it more subtle than it is in most of the cases in these films, you would start losing audience. Yeah, I mean, this was like a major pop culture event. Like, I, you didn't see this in theaters, did you, Seth? No. You said, okay, and you just did, but you don't mm-hmm. remember it. See, for me, this was like the biggest deal because I had seen Scream, you know, on video in the year between, you know, when Scream and Scream 2 came out. I was obsessed with Scream, and when I saw a trailer for Scream 2, it was on the front of some VHS that I owned. And I remember my friend Tiffany and I, like, what? We were, like, going to watch whatever movie this was. But instead, we ended up just, like, rewinding the Scream 2 trailer and watching it over and over again. And, like, I would play it in slow motion to try and figure out what was happening in certain, like, quick cuts. Like, I was just, like, definitely, like, super obsessed with what was happening in this movie. I remember the cover of Entertainment Weekly having Jada Pinkett, Courtney Cox, Nev Campbell, and Sarah Michelle Gellar on it. And I just, like... Basically lost my my head exploded at the mailbox. Your shit I was, was lost at that moment. So excited, just that this was like my favorite movie was on the cover of my favorite magazine with like my favorite actress at the time who was Sarah Michelle Gellar. Like it was just everything was coming up just just perfect <laughs> for me <laughs> in 1997. Well, every problem I have the first movie, I have it times like ten for the second and then times like 30 for the third. Like, I just think... And times 90 and, for yeah. the fourth. <laughs> like, I just think my those flaws get more and more pronounced. Um, but I did like the opening. So. Well, it's interesting. So, like, so the, the first line of the first scene of this movie... I noted that, too. ...is, I hate scary yep. movies. Yep. That's Jada Pinkett's line um, in the very first scene of the second movie. Um, and and it's at the... The first scene of it takes place at the premiere of Stab, which is this kind of movie adapted from the story of Sidney Prescott. This scene really stood out to me because Jada Pinkett Smith, who's kind of just a normal average moviegoer, going to the movies with Omar Epps, who's her shitty boyfriend, um, or at least her shitty date to this movie. Even before wokeness existed as a concept, Jada Pinkett Smith as this moviegoer is making really astute and absolutely spot-on points. Well, do you know why she's making those points? It's because of this line. I read my Entertainment Weekly, okay? I know my shit. I did just speak about Entertainment Weekly. That was obviously, like... One of my favorite quotes of all time. It still is. So anyway. You're precious. You're precious. (laughs) You're precious. (laughs) So Jada Pinkett Smith is making these astute points about the way that black characters are always minimized and so easily discarded in horror movies. And shitty Omar Epps. And that's the way that I refer is that to his him. Cred- is that how he's officially Literally, credited? I don't know if he's imdb as such, but in my heart he is. In this opening sequence, he's going around with her inside this movie theater. And whether it's to like the ticket taker or the concession stand person 
person or the person like ripping tickets in the movie theater lobby. He is like going everywhere apologizing for Jada Pinkett Smith. And he even refers to her as Sister Soldier, which is a very specifically 90s reference. But it was a thing. It was a Sister Soldier was a black female rapper who was very left wing. And Bill Clinton made like a lot of popularity for himself among racist right-wing-ass white people by, like, attacking Sister Soldier in public. What? Yeah. <laughs> no, so it, like, it totally leapt out at me and I had to write it down because as enjoyable as that opening scene is, it seems to be making, like, a very conservative point that, like, the black woman who is pointing out the ways that black people are minimized in literally all horror movies, and she's doing it in the most spot-on and, like, accurate, criticizing way, that, like, she is the person who gets killed in the opening sequence. It was a really, like, weirdly confrontational first scene in a very, like, intriguingly political one, because the movie, I I think the movie very consciously shies away, and the whole series shies away from making any kind of political points, um, yeah. Even when it comes to kind of the power relations between women and men that are like part of every single relationship in among all the characters in these movies. But it was just a weirdly political stance to take, especially in the very first scene of the movie, but also one that I think a lot of people would miss, especially like if they don't know what Omar Epps is making reference to. Yeah, and I love also just that like she's criticizing also the first screen movie, which had no Absolutely. black characters that I can think of at all. At all. No, they're none. They're none. And that's what these movies do, is they not only critique the genre and themselves, but they're, like, this movie exists only, like, could only exist in reaction to the first movie. And that's what that first, Mm -hmm. that opening scene is so brilliant, because it's, you know, it's, it's Kevin Williamson writing bad versions of his own dialogue. Like, I think that's hilarious and, like, when do you see that? Like, that's just... Like, it cracks me up every time. And Heather Graham, you know, like, casting Heather Graham and then, like, later, Toy Spelling and Luke Wilson. And they're just, like, Mm -hmm. they're not doing, like, spoofs. They are acting almost as if they would act seriously. But it's just (laughs) so funny because it's, like, because he it's so well cast with those people. I mean, Toy Spelling obviously was a joke from the first movie then carried into Mm -hmm. the second one. But, like, Heather Graham, like, you don't cast her... 100% 100% seriously. Like, you know who you're casting when you cast Heather Graham. And this was, like, I think two months after Boogie Nights came out. Like, she wasn't even really a huge star at the time. It was just... Well, and I also think that this is a movie that only, not just specifically could only happen in the 90s, but also could only happen pre-9-11. Um, Why? Because, so that opening scene, that would absolutely be considered an act of terrorism now. You know, the to have a like a, a stabbing in a public space yeah, like mean, that in a movie I, theater, I mm-hmm. think that something like that would immediately become a case for like the Department of Homeland Security. They would have gotten the NSA like wiretapping every single motherfucker who attended that movie screening. They would have caught or tried to catch that killer in different ways than they would in the context of the Scream franchise. Like, it was kind of interesting that something that horrific could happen in a public space in the context of any kind of movie and and not be considered terrorist. Because at this time, it was much more of a fantasy that something like that would happen. And now we are unfortunately used to acts of terror happening in occasionally a movie theater, even more than I think 9-11 is Aurora 
you know, it's hard. It's a little hard yeah. to watch this this scene in the wake of that. But I think what makes it potent is actually like that moment when you know she goes up onto like up to the front of the room and you see this look on the audience's faces and they're realizing that this is not the fun horror that they've been celebrating is that this is something real and there's this just this dawning realization on their faces that I find kind of like chilling it's just like and it's just this real it's it's very confrontational it's very like look at what you're enjoying like do you really like this like this is what you're celebrating and it's it's this very like I guess it's confrontational, but it's, it's confrontational, very challenging. I think is it's the word. very like, and I think there's that element again running through all three, all three, where it is the, the storyteller very consciously like pulling back a veil and saying, "Look at what I've pulled back. This was always fake, and I'm showing you what's real, and I'm showing you what's truly dangerous, and this is the thing that you can't escape from, even when you think you're going to by going to the movie theater and trying to escape." Yeah, and I think it's very much, I think it's as effective as the opening in the first Scream, and it's very much a mirror of it. They're both about, you know, a a woman getting ready to watch a horror movie and kind of commenting on what that ritual is. You know, they both have their popcorn, they both comment on the genre, and in this one, it's this even more disturbing like funhouse mirror because there's the killer from the first movie is literally surrounding her and she's she's like mildly afraid but it's not you know she thinks that this is all just fun and games and well but i think it also kind of intentionally subverts that going into the substance of the second movie going past the opening scene um where like one of the first other victims after that is sarah michelle geller's character who is the sober sister quote unquote in her sorority house she as a character doesn't drink she doesn't even have sex like Absolutely none of the things that you expect from the person who is going to be the fresh meat, who's going to be the nice yeah. kill. Um, the And again, I, I would say, um, kind of echoing points that Becky has made, I would say that this is the least effective of the sequels. Um, Scream 2, I think, goes the hardest for the kind of straw man explanation or the kind of remote unrelated third party character who's not even part of the original franchise who comes in um, to kind of be the explanation of quote unquote, you know, why all this happened. Um, I, so spoiler alert again, uh, Lori Metcalf is revealed to be, who is it? The mother of, Billy, yeah, yeah, Skeeter, just yeah. And some so, other and some other dude, right? Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Timothy Oliphant and Laurie Metcalf are kind of revealed to be the the killers in Scream Two, and uh, Laurie Metcalf's character is revealed to be the mother of Billy, who was the killer in the original, one of the killers in the original Scream. Um, and I just thought this had the least grounding in any of the characters we knew. And as much as I love Laurie Metcalf, and I think as good a sport as she is about trying to give some weight to that character that she's playing, I feel like she's kind of a total red herring in this whole saga. And uh, like they, they kind of plant her role in the film as being a kind of investigative reporter who's somewhat competing with 
Courtney Cox's Gail Weathers and in other places is trying to like learn from Gail Weathers and look up to her. Um, but I just, on, on, on that side of it, I don't think she's grounded enough as a character that we should care about in any way. And on the other side of it, I don't think we're given any grounding dramatically in Billy or why we should care about him. Again, like to me, this saga is about Sydney and about Gail Weathers. Um, so I just don't think that in Scream 2, the people who turn out to be the real villains have enough weight to really bring me into it. Well, I mean, that's the very end of the movie. And I have always felt that the unmasking scenes of any Scream movie are really the weakest parts of the movie. I think it works pretty well in the first one because it's very disturbing to see those guys like stabbing each other. It's this weird like commentary on peer pressure that's so over the top and like grotesque that it just becomes both funny, but funny in a very disturbing way. Well, and also like straight male bonding. Yeah, exactly. There's a penetrative aspect to that that is like... It's homosocial in a way. Right. And also in the end of Scream 1, Sydney, to the way that she defeats Billy is to put her finger in his bullet wound, which it's Wes true. Craven talks about it's as true. like a penetration. And, and it's like this oh, kind wow. of reverse, like what he's done to her in a sexual way. Like she kind of does it. And that's what enables her to defeat him in the end to go to that. And yeah, the end of this one definitely has none of that interesting Social dynamic. It's it's kind of a gotcha. The script was leaked on the internet because it was such a big wow. um, phenomenon at this time that the original ending is terrible. What I was think it? so. There were like four killers. What? It, and it was not. I think Debbie Salt was the same. That's Lori Matcuff's character. But it was like three of the other characters from the movie. And I honestly, I don't think that Kevin Williamson had really finished. I think he would have probably realized that this was ridiculous at so some point. So that's the thing. Like, I, it feels like a rushed movie. It feels like a sequel that did not, was not given the proper time to rise in the oven. I only agree with that to the extent of, like, the reveal of the killers. Because I think there's a lot of really great stuff up until... The, I think what the movie does really well is track... The characters, particularly Sydney, and it's a really interesting, I think, second chapter of the story of her trauma. Like, what happens to you after you've faced this kind of horror? She's trying to move on. She now has another boyfriend, and again, you know, she's trying to trust this guy. She was obviously very, almost as horribly betrayed as you can be by a guy who not only, like, tried to kill you, but also killed your mother a year ago and has been intimate with you for a year since and just pretending that that didn't happen. And so I think that it's a very interesting exploration of how do you move on from that and once the killings start happening again it's very interesting how she reacts to him and starts pushing him away at first in kind of subtle ways and and it ends up being this and then very tragedy that like she can't end up trusting him enough to save his life in the end I can't get into Sydney's shoes like you can. I just thematically that sounds great but when I watch this movie I'm just like I'm bored <laughs> Or like witty, witty dialogue, cute laugh. See, I also meta think this comment. movie is well, like really well directed, like better directed than the first one. Like I think the, the scary scenes in this movie are much more intense. Like the scene between Gail and Dewey in the soundproof thing, where he is like stabbed up against the window and she's screaming, like, and he can't hear her. I think that's one of the most effective scenes in the entire franchise. I'm. A little biased, but I love Sarah Michelle Gellar's scene. I think that's a really well-constructed 
like mini horror movie. It, I think it's the um, comparison to the Drew Barrymore scene in the first one. All of the movies have a call between Ghostface and a blonde who ends up dying. And this one, I think, is really well staged in that like she's a sorority girl, but we've also seen her in film class. She's a knowledgeable person about movies. I obviously want to marry this person because she is Sarah Michelle <laughs> yes, Keller in a film class. <laughs> well, so Becky, I have I have a question for you about Leah Schreiber's character, Cotton Weary, and if you have any connection with that at all. Because like he's kind of the... Uh, yeah, I think he's a really interesting angle here, too. I mean... I think he's boring. I mean, <laughs> my, my observations are too Were you actually like, watching this movie like actively or were you doing other things? I'll, I started all of them watching them actively, and then I grew to watching some other things because I was bored, honestly. Right. I mean, I, I kind of feel like you didn't give this movie a chance because I think... I disagree. I think I did give it a chance. I mean, I've seen... I mean, I felt this way when I first saw it in theaters. Um, I saw Scream 2 and 3 in theaters, and I didn't like them then either. Um, what was it, 99 and 2000, or what was it? This was 97. Um, so yeah, I was 15 or 14, whatever it was. Like I, again, just didn't think it was, I didn't, I didn't really believe yeah, so, anybody was a real person. So I wasn't really scared and I really didn't care. You're looking at me like you hate me. I do. I, I mean, this will um, be the last episode of our podcast. I'm, the end I, of our friendship. I, okay. The thing that I like about horror movies, um, because there's as much as I like horror movies, I don't like all horror movies. I think a lot of horror movies are shit. Um, I love horror movies where I actually think those people are going through those things and that there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of depth to the story. And just when I watch these movies, I don't think anyone's real. And I think a lot of it is very clever, but that doesn't make me scared. And I'm just not invested in who lives or dies. And I just like I just it doesn't it doesn't uh, grip me like I can laugh at the funny quips and especially in Scream 3 with Parker Posey which we'll get to like I think it's really funny um and I can be entertained by it but like I also just like don't care even that's interesting to me because one thing I love about Courtney Cox's character Gail Weathers and one thing I love about what her story becomes is that she ends up being punished heavily for the kind of emptiness and shallowness of her life and the way that she approaches these very traumatic events. Again, I won't say that it's handled perfectly well. I won't say that she is a well-rounded character who has really deep stakes and motivations beyond what the plot is calling out from her, but she really is that personality and her character is incredibly shallow, but her character suffers for that and learns from it and grows from it. Picking up on what Chris was saying earlier, there is kind of an interesting character arc for Sydney about the way that she defines trust and the way that she comes to define trust, like veering away from the romantic context and veering away from trying to find a man who she can trust, who she can love and all that, toward trying to find literally a friend or someone she can literally fucking survive with. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a kind of relationship that Again, I don't think most horror franchises really go into because it's just the context of that one movie where this one character and this one other character are trying to survive. But I think there's something interesting about specifically that the tangle between 
Sydney and Gail Weathers, like, over these, like, three and eventually four movies, where they're, like, they they aren't even friends at the end of any of them, but no. they recognize that they're bound up in each other's lives and, and caught up in each other's survival. But I also did think that there were some things about the second movie that were very successful. There's a scene where um, the ghost face killer gets control of a cop car where Sydney and her best friend are riding in the cop car in the back. Uh, and then it crashes uh, into a kind of side street. And so it becomes an escape sequence where Sydney and her best friend have to literally uh, shimmy out through the back kind of retaining bars in this cop car. Then they have to crawl over Ghostface. the killer yeah. as he's passed out, knocked out from this car accident. They have to crawl out over him and through the open window on the driver's side of the car and get out. Um, and I thought that was so suspenseful. Scary as fuck, It was right? scary. It was, like, especially in I a mean, theater. I, I remember it was that absolutely, sequence. It was scary as fuck to me, just even watching it at home. I thought that was finally a moment where they both very obviously were nudging and winking at the conventions of the horror genre where the killer is passed out and they have to, like, sneak past him. You know, it's even, like, a carryover from all kinds of even cartoons and things where, you know, someone's stuck in jail and they... The guard is snoring and they have to steal the keys out of the pocket and then escape from the prison. Like, it, it's a version of so many things that have come before. Um, but I thought that was the most successful moment of suspense in the franchise thus far. Again, I don't know if that was successful enough to make the movie successful overall. Because, again, I thought their reveal of the killer for that one was just very weak. And I don't think that they developed the character of Sydney in the ways that I thought they definitely tried to in the third one, which we'll get to. But I definitely thought that that scene was really worth watching the movie for because it was incredibly scary. Yeah, just to jump on to a lot of what Seth said, since that was a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> Unlike a lot of horror films, I think what's interesting about the Scream series is especially the first one, is it left four really pretty great characters behind for a sequel. Like, most of them will leave one or maybe two behind, and often those people don't even pop up in a sequel. And these are actual characters that carry on, besides Randy, who dies in Scream 2, they carry on throughout all of the movies, and that's, I can't think of a single horror movie with four installments that actually carries, like, three significant characters through it. And I do think that each of the movies takes the opportunity to check in with these characters and really think about where they would be and what's going on with them. Like in this one, I find it really interesting that Gail, who was completely shallow in the first movie, is now caught between, you know, kind of being shallow and having this harrowing experience that she's had. You know, she used to be solely reporting the news and now she's caught between being the news and reporting the news. And that's a conflict that continues on throughout all the movies and I think is a, just a really interesting angle. Like, I would watch a movie just about, you know, someone who does that. And even though, I mean, I, I kind of know what Becky's saying is that these movies are relatively shallow compared to, like, what you could do with so much of them. But I also think there's just so many interesting angles to all of these characters that it's enough to at least invest me in all of these stories and really find a lot of richness that could be explored more. And, but in this movie, I'm just grateful that there's enough of that because any other horror movie, you'd basically get none of this. Um, I think Cotton's story is interesting of having, you know, Ben 
accused for a crime and now he's kind of figuring out what to do and it's like oh he's kind of the most obvious person who would have a grudge against Sydney, and it would make sense if he were a killer and there were drafts of the script in which he was and then like gail and dewey's romance i find like really charming in this movie even it feels a little more genuine in this movie and i think that's because they actually have a lot of chemistry because this is the movie where they got together in real life but again i find like all of this character work for me personally like satisfying enough that I don't necessarily even need like a killer running through here. Like I would be happy to like explore Sydney just going to college and like dealing with her trauma. And another interesting thing about this franchise as opposed to other horror franchises is that the killer changes every time. Pretty much all those other ones follow a consistent killer throughout and it's the victims who change every time. Mm -hmm. And I find it very interesting that this franchise manages to make that work to varying degrees of success, I think, especially as it goes on you can't think too much about the likelihood of all of these people. But it, I think that if you do kind of explain it in sort of a magical realism way of like that all the, that somehow following Sydney and Gail and they are sort of fatally bound together in this quest for survival and that somehow wherever they go, someone just like snaps and kind of becomes this sinister character. Um Another thing I find interesting about this movie is just like it begins in that movie theater and then there's also the angle of Sydney um, being an actress and the movie ends on the stage where she is supposed to perform the character of Cassandra who is a visionary who could see the future and it's this tragedy about a woman who can see things that no one else believes and I think that's very much speaks to her character of someone who's seen things that, you know, other people can't understand. And her character arc throughout most of these movies, particularly, I think, this one is that anytime she tries to start another life, like, everyone in it dies. And it's just like, she cannot get away from this. Like, no matter where she goes, this thing is following her. And again, it's about this trauma and she can't get away from it. It's this the past literally coming back to haunt her, ruining everything she loves, every relationship she gets into, every friend she makes. She just can't get past it. And I, I think that's a perfect segue into Scream 3, where she literally tries to escape everything about her life and then can't and finds that she absolutely can't run away from it all either. She's playing like uh, like a... a- talks to people on the phone like for trauma or something is that it yeah like a trauma counselor yeah that's basically. it trauma counselor. yeah yeah and i find that a really satisfying place for her to be yeah like, like it but it, it in a way i almost wish that it had been two movies i thought that the third movie kind of did a much more serviceable and interesting job um unfolding pretty much the same kind of twists and turns that happened in the second movie um, and also going much more gung-ho at the conventions of the slasher genre by literally staging the filming of a slasher movie and having Scream 3 kind of centered around the production of that movie. I want to bring up something for a second. There's no such thing as a billboard declaring something is in production. <laughs> Did you notice the, the billboard? No, there are sometimes on on movie studios, like specifically what are you on movie, movie studios? studios. What are you talking about? Like they'll say, like Becky, this is being filmed here. I don't know how often you've been on the lot. I've been. I worked on the WB lot. I never. For okay, I've I, seen them. Well, before. that's at the WB. I've never. I've never seen a Billboard declaring, like passengers now in production. You know, like stab well, have, now in production. If you haven't been to the UPN lot, then you haven't seen. I thought Martin that was ridiculous. And there's no. 
movie <laughs> those <laughs> those sets on lots are private and they there's a reason that there's security there's not going to have the movie <laughs> that they're producing in that lot like painted on the wall <laughs> like i just thought it was ridiculous it was like so like a movie well, thank thing you for that fact check of scream three <laughs> I just, like, I, i'm a person in the industry and i've worked on movie in movie like movie studio lots, and like I just thought that was oh, ridiculous. Becky. I would be willing to bet that there is such a thing. There's no such but thing. I will. I will. Why don't you call me the next time you see an in-production billboard? I'll call you and and do a spooky voice, <laughs> and then you'll die. I'd also like to point out that Courtney Cox's hair gets worse and worse in every movie. Oh, 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 oh okay. This is the perfect time for me to explain my scream hair theory, which is that. <laughs> Every screen movie is as good as Courtney Cox's hair. <laughs> it's a sliding, it's a descending sliding scale of hair. So I will admit that I actually, I prefer Scream 2 to Scream 1. I Whoa. love Scream 2. And I love Courtney Cox's hair in Scream 2. Oh, okay. Well, her, what what is her hair her in Scream 2? Red two? streaks. Oh, God, really? That's like so nice. Exactly, it's but it so looked awful. fucking awesome. No, oh. it looks fucking terrible. Oh. No, it's great. It does not hold up. No, it's the hair does di- not it's hold up. dismal. Well, you are obviously not subscribing to my screaming hair theory. I will hold to it. Wait, which is the one where Courtney Cox has hair like the ring girl? Is it? What do you mean, like this? Like the bangs? Like the bangs. bangs. That's, that's, that's scream right? free. Oh Jesus! That is her worst hair, that and this is, is the, the worst scream movie. Wait, wait, what's four? Four is more just normal. It's like down. It's, down. it's normal. Well, yeah. What one is like the Rachel cut almost? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going two, one, three, four. That's my scream ranking. In hair order. <laughs> I find Scream 3, even at the time, I found it very disappointing. So Scream 1 and 2 were released, like I said, within one year of each other. But it took another two years for Scream 3 to get made. And in that time, Kevin Williamson basically became the late 90s, like, single-handedly. <laughs> Dawson's he, Creek, Yeah, right? he wrote, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Whoa. Um, the faculty created Dawson's Creek. In 1999, he had a show out called Waste, Wasteland that didn't last very long. He made his directorial debut with Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Oh, my God. Which has Molly Ringwald in it, which plug for the next episode, which is Molly Ringwald. So I'm probably going to watch that just It for will fun. not be about Teaching Mrs. Mm-hmm. Tingle. And we'll talk for minutes and minutes upon, about Teaching Mrs. Tingle. <laughs> we will not. So um, cut those minutes out. when this movie wa- came out or was being made, he was too busy to write it. So he had originally sold the first script of Scream with, five-page outlines for Scream 2 and Scream 3. And then Columbine happened, and the studios became very um, uncomfortable with teen violence, basically. And that's why this movie takes place in Hollywood, and it's a very different story that's not focused on teenagers. The original story was supposed to go back to Woodsboro and be kind of similar to what Scream 4 ended up being. Well, Sydney's not even a teenager anymore at this point, so it wouldn't No, but she was supposed to basically go back, and it was, I think it was going to be like a, a fan club that ended up being the killers, like people from a fan club. And it was just a five-page outline, so um, I don't know how far that idea really got, and I don't know that I really particularly like that idea for Scream 3. I like the general story of Scream 3. Kevin Williamson did not write this movie. It was Aaron Kruger. And I think that a lot of the weaknesses of Scream 3 and 4 are his fault because I love Kevin Williamson and I am not willing to assign blame to him for anything. But no, I think... Well, I think Aaron Kruger is a terrible writer. Yeah, he did all of the Transformer sequels, but not the first one. And didn't he do Indiana Jones 4? I think he wrote Crystal Skull. 
I didn't see that. Maybe he did like a rewrite on it. But anyway, yeah, I think like the some of the broader comedy beats in this movie that just don't feel like the first two movies are. I mean, I know you find them too heightened, but I think those comedy beats get more heightened in three and four yes. in a I way liked, that I liked where the comedy I feel, beats in three. I liked weirdly. Parker Posey. Yes. I love well, Parker yes, Posey. That's the exception. Can we just take a moment to cherish Parker Posey as the treasure that she is in this world? Yes. How long is I, this moment? <laughs> it's Honestly, over now. just uh, We cut the moment out of the can, podcast. No, no, You're we'll welcome. leave this moment in. It's silent. Imagine that it goes on she's for very like another funny. half a minute. She's great. Yeah. She's the best thing. One of the best things about this movie, maybe the best thing. Um, but there are also really, like, I feel about Scream 3 and 4, I think the way Becky feels about all, all of, of the screams <laughs> is that, like... It goes off the fucking rails. Like, my my comment, my major comment for Scream 3 is, it's so fucking, fucking meta. Like, it's, like... That was also the tagline. <laughs> yeah, that's really what the tagline should be, because it's, like, the whole point of the series going on is not to scare me, but to just to be like, look at this other clever thing of how we're meta. Look at this clever thing of how we're meta. Who is this? I think you have the wrong number. But you know my favorite name? I'm hanging up right now. It's Sarah. Roman, that's not the line. It is in my script. Has there been another goddamn rewrite? How the fuck are we supposed to learn our lines when there's a new script every 15 minutes? It's not just a new script, it's a new movie. What? What movie? My movie. And it's called Sarah Gets Cured Like a Fucking Pig. It's almost caught between, like, the first Scream and an actual, like, the scary movie, like, parodies of these movies. Yeah, no, it is. It definitely, and I think it does self-consciously go after a funnier tone. Oh, absolutely. It it does remind me, I don't know if you guys did watch the Child's Play franchise, but the first one is legitimately trying to be, like, a scary movie. Really? Um, it's kind of schlocky, but it's supposed to be scary. That's Child's to Play me. Two has definitely more laughs to it, and obviously, Bride of Chucky's like is see, a harrowing like, drama, right? Like obviously, as that franchise went on, it was it's less like Lorenzo's oil. It was less about <laughs> Lorenzo's doll. It was less about being scary and more about taking something like horrific and just making jokes. And that's honestly how I feel about Scream: is that it started out wanting to have clever quips and be scary and then just with every each movie it's more about this funny joke and that funny joke and aren't we clever and mm-hmm. ooh jump scare okay back to a clever clever learn here oh look at this fourth wall break and i find that like like joss whedon for me kevin williamson is able to get that tone right or about right and when other people try and do it it just kind of falls flat um i think the opening is really like the first sign that something is amiss in the Scream universe and that this movie or this opening is just not a Scream movie opening. Like there's nothing He's like clever in about at the Hollywood it. Bowl. Yeah, I mean, And there's it's like, so much exposition. Hi, I'm Cotton Weary. I'm uh, now a star in Hollywood. Can yeah. I help you? It's, it's <laughs> very bizarre. It's very famous. Because every Scream movie. With me on it. Yeah, it was so like. It was oh. very weird. Every Scream movie, including the fourth one, is about how we watch horror movies and setting mm-hmm. up the ritual of watching horror movies. So the first one is you watch it at home on video with your popcorn, the second one in a theater. This one, I mean, it could have been anything. And then the, we'll talk about the fourth one. It has a very, very meta opening. Just but, say it right now. <laughs> We're which is about like a movie ones. within a movie within a movie, basically. Which was like funny, but like. I love it. I love the opening of Scream 4. <laughs> But this it one fits, just... It fits the tone more than the third opening did. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. And it's yeah. supposed to have, like, 
stars that are interesting. This one has... We have Schreiber, who we've already met. Like, we know his character. He's yeah. not a random person that we're meeting. And Kelly Rutherford, which is... Just his wife. Really, like, like, not a star. Like, not... that's She's no Drew Barrymore. And they're also just, not, like, not interesting characters whatsoever. Yeah. No, and it, it, it does the sequel, the stupid thing that so many sequels do of just, like... Now he's got a voice changer and he can sound like anyone. And it's like, that doesn't make it better. Like, no, like Scream is the voice of the ghost face character. Like, that's what the movie is. No one wants to hear like, oh, is it Sydney on the phone? Is it someone else? Like, it it just totally doesn't work. It felt like it stopped thinking of the audience as being intelligent. And started being mm-hmm. like, "Oh, you're dumb. You'll just go along with this, this, uh, this plot twist or this thing over here." Or now there's a voice changer. Like it didn't really respect the audience's intelligence. I felt like. Yeah, and it's not really about horror movies. The first movie has Linda Blair in it as a cameo, as she's a reporter. You know, they are very steeped in the world of horror. And this movie has Jay and Silent Bob in God, cameo. What were they that doing? was such a weird cameo. Carrie Fisher, doing? who I appreciated Carrie in Fisher. the role. It was funny. I love it all. Time. But I'm also like, still, that's the. That would work better if she was a horror movie. If it was Jamie Lee Curtis or someone like Kathy Bates and Heather Matarazzo appearing as a sister. Where did she come from? Oh my god! Like, did Aaron Kruger really love Todd Solondz or something? I don't know. I know. I really. I legitimately had no fucking idea where she came from. They just like real, and she's like in her scene. She's like, "Hi, Sydney. Hi, Dewey." As if like she had been around all along. It's yeah. like, no, bitch. Like you were never in Woodsboro. <laughs> no, bitch. This is a callback. You're not part of the club. What are you doing? And just like that desperation of having like, oh, we need Randy, but we killed him. Like maybe that was a mistake. Because I I personally believe that Dewey should have been the one to die in Scream Two, and Randy should. I think Randy's kind of essential to the franchise, and he's a reason why, maybe partially these next two movies don't quite have the right I agree balance of commentary because you really need that character to be the commentary on the genre and someone you can't who have loves, just like other people do and it. someone who loves the genre exactly. is important I think not just people who are victim of the genre <laughs> you know like that's part of, that really is I think part of the kind of charm of Scream in particular is his character uh-huh. he's like taken out so carelessly I mean I think it's a great scene when he I love that scene as well I do Scream love that too. scene it's shocking and dies, it's horrifying that he still, dies but it does create this like unfortunate ripple effect of like I guess now we gotta throw Heather Matarazzo in there to explain things like this movie had an opportunity to do it like you could have done it with Scott Foley as the killer like he could have been obsessed with horror movies and commenting on this but no he was kind of a nothing character like I said every Scream movie has like a call with a blonde and in Scream 3 we get Jenny McCarthy as the big like (laughs) ghost face and a blonde scene and that Scene is just not. I mean, it doesn't even feel like this is directed by Wes Craven, and no, it really doesn't. He I mean, I, doesn't like this movie. Feels like 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 a wanna, substitute teacher showed up. I feel one like day. this is a controversial statement, but oh shit! I mean, I I appreciate Wes Craven and the movies he has, you know, his career, but I feel like this whole franchise is just filmed really flatly, and particularly three and four. But I just feel like there's no iconic shot. Um, there's no like. There's nothing interesting of the composition. There's, I mean, you talked about something being well staged, but I just didn't get that through any of these movies. Um, I just felt like it one was so two. flat. I one and two, I feel like have, one and two. have moments that are really well staged that really pull me into it, despite the 
always over the top meta self-referential self-deconstructing kind of genre commentary that goes on there are moments that elevate beyond that but especially like through most of three and four three and four in particular i just thought were just so boring to watch like the way everything looked i think is the word it all it just looked like coverage yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of that is because Aaron Kruger was writing the script during production, so they didn't even have <laughs> a finished script. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and this is the movie where Bob Weinstein kind of took control of the franchise, and there was... Which one? Three or four? Three. Both of them. But this is where it started as... You can kind of tell that Wes Craven isn't a big fan of this movie just from what he says about it, and it, that gets more pronounced in number four, but... the studio wanted to play up the comedy elements because of Columbine and because it was so uneasy about violence as every every movie was a little uneasy about violence in mm-hmm. like the year after that i think it was Wes craven who even said this is that what makes scream good is that it really considers the violence and even though it shows the violence it does so in a responsible way in which you actually like feel the consequences of it which i, I think especially in that drew barrymore scene but and then in scream 3 you feel nothing for anything although i will say i think that this scene where Sydney is like running through the movie set of her old bedroom and her old town that's is cool. pretty great. Like, that's that cool. that's a really one cool. really well staged right. scene. That's that was really cool. cool. And that was the one moment where I felt like the kind of visitations of her mother's spirit didn't ring super hollow. Yeah. Like it was, it, and in a way, I feel like it was kind of the fact that it took place on a movie set where everything was by its nature completely fake and hollow, meta. where that kind of worked. And yeah, no, like as on the nose, really meta and postmodern as that is, I really, and that, I think Scream 3 might have actually been the first Scream movie I saw. Cause that, that sequence in the movie, in the film set, was kind of one of my first visual memories of the Scream franchise And you didn't all. even have the reference of the and, first movie. And it didn't because even it have shot a reference very, very the, similarly. Right, it's shot, like, identically. Um, yeah, and again, it's it's a pretty interesting sequence, but the movie just doesn't have enough of a skeleton or blood to hang the thing on. Yeah, the mother stuff in this movie is, it's, again, I feel like that stuff was so present in the first two movies, but without an actual, like, ghost dream character coming out and, like, needing to, like, put it, like, right up in your face. I think this movie also, like, kind of contextualizes all of the Scream movies as the ultimate (laughs) slut-shaming. Because, like, it really cements the idea that Maureen's slutty past basically caused all of this to happen. (laughs) And it's just... I mean, it says a lot of interesting things about, I think, sexuality in the horror genre, this this trilogy in general, but... I feel like it's kind of a subset of the argument that I drew from Jada Pinkett Smith's scene in the opening of Scream 2, which is like, in its few moments of not self-awareness, but awareness of the ways that it's kind of, that the genre's kind of cliches... um, kind of uh, speak to a weakness of women and a weakness in the way that women are perceived. Um, I think it kind of reinforces most of those images of female weakness. I think it does in um, this movie because I think of the way that it wraps movie. up. I think especially in the third one. Yeah, because Marina is first murdered by the son of her lover in Scream 1. Then his ex-wife comes after her daughter in Scream 2, and then her illegitimate child is the one who kills in Scream 3. And it's like, if she had just closed her legs, like, none of this would have happened. So, 
Braden. Sex was probably really good, though. I hope so. I <laughs> it hope was it was worth, worth it. it. Did she make a loud noise? All right, so now I think we can move on <laughs> to the legacy of um, Scream 3. Scream 3, by the way, did not do uh, quite as well as Scream 1 and 2. It only made $89 million at the box office on a budget of $40 million. So the franchise was definitely weakening at this point, and it also was not quite as well-reviewed um, when it came out in 2000. So it was a while before the franchise came back in 2011. I can't even believe, I did not remember at all that it, it was released in 2011. I mean, it was a big deal for me. I was very excited, but I also kind of sensed that it wasn't what it was before, you know, just because it didn't have quite the same amount of hype. The legacy of Scream is interesting just because Scream 1 and 3 are the top three slasher movies of all time, which is interesting for something that's kind of a parody of the genre to be, mm-hmm. like, also the pinnacle of the genre. It's also Wes Craven and Kevin Williams's like, number one movie is both Scream, like their highest grossing movie. Mm -hmm. Five of the top 10 slasher movies on the top 10 are Kevin Williamson's in some way, either a Scream movie or also, um, I know what you did last summer in Halloween H2O. Those are all in the top 10. Halloween H2O in the top 10? Yeah, the top 10. There's not a whole lot of slasher movies. These are slasher movies, not horror movies. Yeah. Halloween H2O, by the way, is actually kind of a great movie. Yeah? That might be a subject for Mm, another podcast. (laughs) No. Yeah, so they did end up reviving Scream in 2011 in Scream 4, which, again, was plagued by a lot of problems. Like the script and its existence. Right. And the casting and also the direction. (laughs) Yeah. Again. And the editing (laughs) and the production design. I mean, I think Scream 4, you haven't seen it, have you? I have. I saw it in the theater. Oh, I thought you hadn't seen it. Okay. Then, I did not rewatch it for the purposes of this episode, but I did see it in theaters. That is fine. So the script, the original script is actually much, much better than the movie because they cut out a whole lot of really interesting stuff that I find flabbergasting. And it was all... What? So they, Kevin Williamson wrote the original script and then they had Aaron Kruger come in and do rewrites during production. And Kevin Williamson was too busy making Vampire Diaries to be involved in this movie and also had a really big fight with... Bob Weinstein. So basically, this is Bob Weinstein's movie. Oh, Jesus. The cut is all him. You can tell from what Wes Craven said about the movie, and you can hear the tone of his voice in the commentary on the DVD, that he is a little sad with how this movie came out. And I can absolutely see why. Like, the, I mean, it was a long, it was a long cut. It was like almost two and a half hours, but... Well, I guess we can talk about the general opening scene, but it's a movie within a movie within a movie, Mm -hmm. and it's very, very meta, and it's just, like, Mm -hmm. basically, like, slamming your head into the screen of a horror movie, basically. It's so... And I love it. I mean, just having, like, Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin, like, watching a horror movie, and then Kristen Bell just stabs her in the stomach, and it's, like, you definitely can't see that coming, but it's also so ridiculous that there can't possibly be stakes in these... Because these are supposed to be, like, the bad horror movie. It's all jokes. It's just Yeah, it represents what Scream brought about. It becomes Family Guy. Because it's a series all, that turns into Family Guy. All of the movies that came out as a result to Scream were not as good as Scream. You know, some of them pretty good, and then they quickly got pretty bad. And it just, horror basically became what it was beforehand. And so these movies represent that, and I think it's a really clever way that... that it just, it's so over the top and crazy that it, it, it's kind of just saying there's absolutely no 
way for us to surprise you anymore. So we're going to just like shock you with these the most ridiculous twists we can find. Yeah, but I feel like especially just my memories of that movie were like that attitude carried through literally every scene in the movie. Like both like to to who the ultimate killers were, to what their goals actually were in doing the killing. Like it was so meta that it was beyond the point at which being meta could have any entertainment value whatsoever. Yeah. And I most um, I mostly agree with that. And the scenes that grounded it were mostly cut out because it was a lot of character development of um, the Emma Roberts character who plays Sydney Sydney's cousin and her mother. Like you in the deleted scenes, like you learn her mother is like an alcoholic who's like kind of negligent, and you get a little bit of shading for why like this girl would act out that way. There's a little bit more with her boyfriend, but kind of one of the most crucial things is that there are like there the opening scene had. Okay, so first of all, there was an alternate opening in which the two girls in the beginning, Ghostface starts, appears, and the girl just thinks it's another joke, and Ghostface is stabbing the girl to death while her friend is just like, this isn't scary, like, I'm not scared. And it's this really, like, grim, like, scene of a girl watching her friend die and not even realizing that that's what she's seeing because she's so desensitized to this from all of these movies that they've just watched. And it's so much more powerful than the scene that you end up seeing, which is just kind of a watered-down version of, like, the Drew Barrymore kind of scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And that's, like... And that was, again, like, a studio note that, like, oh, this isn't scary enough. And it's just, like, these asinine decisions were made at every turn in this movie. And that somehow, like, Bob Winston was the one who championed this the first scream in the first place and you know found something to love in this movie and somehow by the time this one came out just like lost his frame of reference for what made these movies good and instead well and i think i think the weinsteins clearly got to a point in their careers where they mistook themselves for storytellers and while i think that the weinsteins um really were a great catalyzing force in independent filmmaking and cinema in the 90s. I also think they got to a point where they really thought they mistook themselves for being filmmakers and mistook themselves for being storytellers, and they're not. And it takes a different skill set to recognize a good movie and recognize a good filmmaker than it does to make a good movie and to be a good filmmaker. And I think they totally lost sight of that. Yeah, um, another angle of Scream 4 that was completely cut out is that the killers hang one of the girls in the opening from, like, the ceiling, mimicking Drew Barrymore in the first movie, and the other one is tied to a chair, like the boyfriend, and and basically there's this element of trying to remake the original, and that really should have been part of it, because that's when Emma Roberts is revealed as the killer. She's trying exactly to remake the original and cast herself as a star, and there's... I mean, I'm not saying it would have been, like, a fantastic movie had this all stayed, but it definitely would have been a lot more more coherent since there's a lot of dialogue that, like, oh, the killer's going to remake the first movie, but you never see any of that, and it's just... It would have been a through line at least. Yeah. At least, like, trying to draw a connective line. And instead you get these, like, stupid scenes of, like, Marley Shelton and her, like, fucking lemon squares. Like, (laughs) lemon squares are mentioned at least five times in this movie. And I'm like... Lemon squares are the Sharon Stone of the fourth film. (laughs) I guess so, yeah. And it's just, like, I I mean, I hate her character in general in this movie because she's just, like, way too broad and comedic. And it's just, like, what is this? This does not belong in a Scream movie. And Anthony Anderson and does this, like, stupid line, like, fuck Bruce Willis as he's been, like, stabbed in the forehead. It's, like... 
there's a fine line that you can do with like comedy and that's just way over the top of like what's believable i mean like mm-hmm. i have a slightly different line but i have yeah. crossed the same line by the time <laughs> yeah. this movie comes out and i'm like no i will <laughs> say that my very favorite thing about this movie is hayden panettiere I think really? her, Agreed. Her character is really? awesome. Agreed. She's awesome in this movie. Yeah, I really liked her in this movie. And she was like one of the few things I remembered about it that I really about liked. What about her? Wait, no, 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 no. Please, just ask me one more question. Just one more. All right, Kirby. Then it's time for your last chance question. Name the remake of the groundbreaking horror movie in which the villain... Halloween, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville Horror, uh, Last House on the Left, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, When a Stranger Calls Prom Night, Black Christmas, House of Wax, The Fog, uh, Piranha. It's one of those, right? Right? I don't know. I think it's her performance, honestly, because I don't know that there's anything too great about her, the way her character is written. But she's just, I think she's really real in a way that almost no one else. I I actually think Emma Roberts is pretty good for what the role calls for. And I do kind of enjoy the way over the top, like as she's like stabbing herself in the end of the movie. It's entertaining. It's a little bit shallow. I think it's, it's, it's it's a very obvious message of like, She's the desensitized youth of today. That It does enough for me until they get to the hospital and then it kind of devolves. But yeah, Hayden Panettiere is the only person who reminds me of an actual, like, real person, real teenager in this movie. Like most of the characters do for me in the first couple of movies. And maybe even more. Like, I think she's better than, like, Tatum in the first movie as, like, the best friend kind of character. Oh, yes. And there is even a change.org petition to keep her alive because you see her kind of, <laughs> she gets stabbed and you see her kind of struggling on the ground, but you don't see her uh. physically dead. And there is a big, big fan following for Kirby, that's her character, to survive in Scream 5. If there even is a Scream 5, we don't really know. There should um, not be. There probably shouldn't. The Scream 5 is called scream the series that's currently on mtv yeah that's not so good that doesn't even have ghost face in it it's completely let's let's not i watched like one episode i I saw a photo of the mask the other day we should not even go it's garbage there's there's a there's a mask but it's not ghost it's not even remotely like it's nothing and nothing in the show is at all really like it doesn't take place in wordsboro it It doesn't have the same characters but it's just okay so it's not it's a horror it's basically another it's kind of like pretty little liars it's, it's like, none of the things that you did not know and love already from the first I mean, it's a totally fine if you want, like, a teen show, but it's there's no absolutely no reason it should be connected to Scream whatsoever. Oh, I didn't know that. And so, obviously, Scream set off a wave. Uh, like, it basically revitalized horror in a way that I think we're still seeing movies about, although they're not really in the Scream model anymore, necessarily. But until The Blair Witch Project and Sixth Sense, like, in the summer of 1999, like, every horror movie was informed by Scream in one way or another. It was Urban Legend, Halloween H2O, The Faculty, Disturbing Behavior. I think even the remake of Psycho is probably a result of the Scream movies. Would you say the biggest influence is that it's young, pretty people, and it's, like, very cool and glossy. Um, well, I like, mean, what else about, horror what, movies what is it about Scream that... young, pretty people, and I think these movies in particular, like, it was definitely mostly, like, WB stars who were on hiatus for the summer filming these things. <laughs> um, 
But I, I think it's mostly like the self-referential thing, which kind of died down in a way. But in the late 90s, that was definitely a thing. That was also like, it was. I think it was a coincidence that Buffy also had that as well because Buffy was basically being made at the same time as Scream and couldn't really have been influenced by it. But yeah, I think it was just like the success of it that just revitalized this interest in it. Like Ghostface is the most popular Halloween costume out there right now. You have Freddy and Jason and then you have Ghostface and I don't know that since then there's even really been another yeah, I think iconic horror villain. I think that's there's the last Jigsaw. one. He's not no, bigger. But he's, but he's not like an iconic Halloween right. costume. If you even there, showed you see me people a Jigsaw. dressed as him. You know, like if you look at like a live stream of, but Me I don't Who even Halloween, know if I would recognize see. a jigsaw costume necessarily because I only saw the first saw and I had no interest in seeing the rest of them. And that's, I mean, when you talk about what the strengths of Scream are, I think they're completely the opposite of like those movies are all about just killing. You feel nothing they're about for the characters. The kills. Yeah. Like that Score. is the only. And I think in the Scream movies, like more often than not, you don't want to see the characters die. Like you like the suspenseful scenes, but I. I'm usually rooting for them to get away. I, yeah, yeah. I know you don't like the characters as much as I do, but I'm. It's very... not that I want them to die. I just don't care if they live. <laughs> well, apathetic, apathetic Becky. Um, so you know, we should mention Wes Craven passed away last year. So he Which obviously is, is not around to make any more screen movies. I think Kevin Williamson is a little burned. And I don't know, I mean, if there is another Scream movie, I would definitely like to see Hayden Panettiere back, as many fans would. But, um, I mean, I guess I would like it if they could possibly, like, revive the franchise in a way that's as good. And I think Kevin Williamson has that in him. You know what? I was thinking about this. And if I was doing a sequel to Scream, what I think is actually scary and different is if... So all the movies are basically whodunit, like... Yeah, it's the same mask, but different people underneath it, and you have to yeah. figure out along with Sydney who's under the mask. So, what if you already? What if you were following the person that was in the mask? What if you were following the villain and you knew all the things that they were going to do, and you saw from their point of view them setting up all these, you know, booby Ooh. traps, or their, you know, how they get from one end of the house to the other, or maybe they're working with somebody and how they recruit somebody to be with them and commit these murders. It's like a documentary, <laughs> kind of like, but you're you're seeing it from the villain side, and I think that's ten million times creepier. I think that they would be actually so much creepier because. Obviously, we each thought it had a different degree of success in achieving that. But the most successful moments of the franchise and the most successful killers that they established were ones who had kind of real tangible ties dramatically to the other characters that we've grown to actually care about. The few that we actually grew to care about. And if it spent all of its time narratively establishing the actual weight behind the vendetta that this person is on, I feel like that would hit so much harder. Because then, like, if and when it went to the characters that we do know, like when it brought back Sydney or if it brought back Gail Weathers, we would see them from a totally different perspective mm -hmm. too, but we would have what we already took with us from those other movies with doing that. I think that's, like, I think that's an angle on it that it hasn't ever pursued in those movies. Right. That's true, and I think that there is enough juice in this franchise to do something like that or give it the juice yeah i mean i i think that there's enough potential in scream just based on what it has done already and these characters in this foundation and the fact that it is so iconic that it could come back 
as long as Aaron Kruger is not involved. Hopefully Bob Weinstein will, you know, stay away from it and just put his name on it and not be crazy. And if anyone besides Kevin Williamson should write a screen movie, I think it's me. So <laughs> yeah, I'm putting probably. that out in the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that will conclude our episode. As I teased earlier, our next episode will be following the films of Molly Ringwald and John Hughes, their collaborations. There are three of them. So look forward to that. And that's all the screaming we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. Oh, just one more. <laughs> okay, well, we have and time bleeding. for a couple more screams. <laughs> no, I'm done now. That's all, though. This has been the When We Were Young podcast. It is a production of the MFP studio in Los Angeles, California. We would love it, as Chris mentioned at the top of our show, if you would subscribe to us on the iTunes. And it would also be great if you could leave us reviews on iTunes and rate us a delicious five stars for all the work that we've put forward for you. Um, If you enjoy the show, you can follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash WWWY show. You can follow us on Twitter at WWWY show. You can email our show with any suggestions or feedback you have at WWWY show at gmail.com. And you can also contribute to us through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash when we were young to help us defray the costs of bringing you a show entirely for free. I have been Seth Pearson. I have been Becky. I was once Chris. And we're going to stab all of you now. Careful. This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. Not in my movie.